Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the pens. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. What's up, everybody? My name is Drew, and you are listening to episode 150. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. Huge. It's huge. Is it? I, I think so. I mean, it's it's numerically higher than 100. Heck, it's higher than 149, but That's maybe true. not quite as high as 200. It's but not. It's not a thousand or anything. It's not. It's not. But you know what? We don't have that many things to celebrate on a day-to-day basis. So uh, I'm giving us this one. This one's, you know, a win. We made it to 150. In spite, That's true, man. Yeah. Congratulations, of, man. Exactly. Congratulations as well. In spite of the fact that we might not get the listens that you know, some other less uh, reputable channels get. I'd like to think that we're more determined than they are, and we will keep on chugging along, and hell or high water, we will get listeners. That's right. Yeah, we're uh, we're focused on the quality of our content. Don't exactly. judge a podcast on the quantity of its episodes but judge a podcast on the quality of its content exactly exactly we could be we could you know have millions upon billions of followers but you know if at the end of the day i have to hawk cgc graded comics and you know talk about doomsday in order for people to listen (laughs) to me i don't I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror. You so. say that now until somebody <laughs> offers you a bunch of money to be a sellout. <laughs> well, if they offer me money, then that changes everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because then they'll be giving me money. <laughs> you didn't so say anybody, anything about that earlier. <laughs> if anybody out there listening wants to give us money. If you want me to sell out my principles altogether, if you wish me to whore myself out, then by all means, I will for the right dollar amount. (laughs) There is no principle that I'm willing to get rid of, that I'm willing to hold on to if the right amount of dollars is placed in front of me. (laughs) Yeah, don't, don't call Albert... A mercenary. He's a bounty hunter. Uh, yeah. I mean, I thought cons- I thought considering myself a whore right at the top of this was probably the most accurate description. <laughs> but sure, we can go with bounty hunter. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Anyways, so this being our hundred fiftieth episode, uh, you know, what better way? to celebrate the the ethos of us than to do what we do best, which is to rag on things that we hate. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what podcast episode can we do that would purely sum up and distill everything that we are 
in in one episode and it would be that and that is what we are doing we today's episode we are continuing our our build up to the top 25 dc comics of all time but in that build up we are not just limited limiting ourselves to the honorable mentions there are also a whole butt ton of things in the oeuvre of DC Comics that people may think should deserve to be on the list, but but they didn't make it because we ain't your regular folk. We ain't regular Joes. We might even go so far as to think they're actually bad. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, not only is this an exercise in uplifting the honorable mentions, but part of the process is mentioning the dishonorable mentions. That's right. We are here to dissect a pretty well-known comic, at least well-known from the past 15 years or so. And I don't even know if this comic is beloved currently anymore, if people even remember it. But I do remember at the time it it was... Uh, it was kind of a big deal, and I, I do think that it's it's worth talking about. And we're not here solely just to clown on it, but I think we'll try to actually have intelligent reasons as to why this comic doesn't work. But we will yeah. clown on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have our cake and eat it, too, because this is our 150th party celebration. And what is a party without cake? That's right. So... The comic book that will be held up to scrutiny today is Identity Crisis, a seven-issue miniseries published in 2004. Identity Crisis was written by Brad Meltzer, penciled by Rags Morales, inked by Michael Baer, colored by Alex Sinclair, and lettered by Ken Lopez, and Mike Carlin was the editor. Albert, you want to give the people a brief synopsis of Identity Crisis? Sure, I will try my best to give a synopsis that will not spoil it for those of you who want to read it on your own. But in my opinion, it is a book that is spoiled from stem to root. So (laughs) what am I really spoiling, right? Uh, It would be like trying to spoil an apple that was already rotten. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So the story of Identity Crisis basically begins with the murder of a close, beloved person to someone within the superhero community. And as a result, the panic that ensues within the community causes them to take actions that that essentially reveal uh, that the silver age of superheroes had some dark secrets within it. So it's a mystery that surrounds the death of this, this wife of this, uh, of one of the characters within the story. And once the murder occurs, it's a, a murder that strikes so close to home that all the superheroes within the community, they, they just go out in full force trying to solve it as quickly as possible as a means of protecting themselves. And 
while all this is going on, while they are in a state of panic, they secrets are revealed about actions that took place in the past that that taint the superhero community moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's my brief synopses of it. Is there anything that you feel like deserves needs to be mentioned uh any other details that frankly i don't think anything about this comic deserves (laughs) to be mentioned with any kind of (laughs) neutrality or positivity we're only talking about this because (laughs) we're not fans of this comic but it is an interesting exercise to examine why we don't like something yeah and we did reread this to properly uh identify those reasons there's a lot of problems with this comic and it it's a comic that I th- I personally have had quite a bit of experience with over the years. Uh I'm not sure how many times you've read it, but I've definitely read it probably close to half a dozen times if if not more. Yeah. And I really don't know why I did that to myself. Yeah. I've read it quite a few times as well. Uh I feel there like there've re- definitely been times when I've owned my own copy of this too. Yeah, same here, same here. I I uh I read it one time when it first came out. I don't even really remember how I read it. I want to say that it might have been the library or something just because of the hype. Mhm. And then um and then after I read it at the library a few years down the line, I did find a pretty cheap copy of a hardcover at the green apple and i decided to buy it you know just because i think i think there was a part of me that just wanted to buy a comic yeah it was a hardcover it was a a hardcover and it was cheap yeah exactly and you were lonely (laughs) 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 well uh oh okay well yeah (laughs) uh if you ever want to stop a conversation dead in its tracks, that's the way to do it. <laughs> Albert, are you lonely? What am I not lonely? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyways. Um, and then I think even after I bought it from the Apple and having had enough conversations with you, I do think uh the persistent drumbeat of how bad it was and you know my respect of your opinion it did shame me a little bit and rereading it i i came to the conclusion that it's probably something that i could do without and i did get rid of it and then uh and then the most recent time was for this podcast episode so i've i've read it quite a few times i don't know if i read it six times or or half a dozen times like you did i don't know how that would happen like i'm kind of <laughs> curious well you weren't clearly you weren't as lonely as i was <laughs> when you're lonely and desperate any port in a storm will do man you lose all sense of taste and and standards and you're just willing to throw yourself into the arms of the nastiest thing out there you know what i'm saying uh yeah, I mean at the beginning of the episode I referred to myself as a whore, so I do know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only thing is is that identity crisis didn't give me any money. So <laughs> In fact, it cost me money. 
Well, <laughs> I lost I mean, money. <laughs> let it be known that you know this is our drug of choice when we're when we're in a bad mood and when we're feeling down in the dumps and lonely. We don't turn to the bottle. We turn to bad comics. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're just sitting in the gutter, like, <laughs> well, just covered in filth, surrounded by the worst comics. And we're just like, it happened again. Yeah. Why do I keep doing this to myself? I don't need to do any hard drugs when I can just crack open an issue of Spawn. Yeah. <laughs> That's enough damage to my brain right there. Uh, yeah, my history with Identity Crisis is actually reading it on a monthly basis as the event was being released in comic book stores. So this oh. was, yeah, this was summer 2004. I was still in college at the time, just about to start my, yeah, senior year of college, I think, my last year of college as an undergrad. And this Identity Crisis series was the big DC event. I don't believe I bought my own copy of it at the time, but one of my roommates was buying it. So I would always read his. And at the time, it was pretty fun, to be honest, because this was an era before, like right before they started doing events every single year and making it an emphasis of their lines i'm talking about dc and marvel both but this was uh the early days of those event comics and i think probably you could say the success of identity crisis in terms of sales did encourage dc to keep on doing it in the future the same way that something like house of m at marvel encouraged them to continue doing events every year to the point where eventually we would get multiple events per year, but each event just seemed less and less important because there were just so many of them and nothing ever really meant anything. So it didn't feel like it mattered. But at the time, in 2004, the halcyon days of 2004, when we were young, immature, and naive, we did think that every issue of this coming out was a big deal. And we would dissect it and try and figure out who the killer was and, you know, all the all the different links to the rest of the DC universe, because there were quite a few tie-ins as well. But hmm. I do remember reading the issues multiple times just because we were having fun trying to figure out the mystery of it. So before each issue would come out, maybe not every time an issue came out, but there were definitely a few times when we would reread the issues that had been already released before reading the latest issue and then of course when the seventh issue came out we reread the whole thing uh, and then the trade paperback collection and so on and so forth so yeah I, I definitely read this a bunch of times and i think i think it was the ending of the series that really got me down on it because i think up to that point i was sort of with it but then the reveal happened, and then I had to think about what I had just read. And each time I reread the comic, I would continue to think about it. And the more you, this is a comic where the more you think about it, 
the flimsier it becomes and you just start seeing all the flaws and the logical fallacies and poor writing and poor decisions and questionable choices made along the way and those end up being the things that stand out over time yeah but yeah i've i've definitely had a long experience with this comic I'm pretty sure i bought a super cheap copy at the apple at one point too because i i remember owning a paperback of it and i i think i think at that point that was probably the time when i finally realized you know this is just flat out a bad comic and i i don't need this in my life anymore i i think i ended up giving it to some kid or maybe i sold it or something at a sale wow you gave it to a kid it's <laughs> 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 like hey kids you like superman you like batman flash green lantern wonder woman this is a comic for you <laughs> sorry like we're we're not in spoiler territory yet but there there is something about that that we'll get to later where there is there's something shocking about that if it, <laughs> if it is in fact what he did. <laughs> um, okay. Before we uh, before we get into any spoiler territory, I I do want to ask if you have any thoughts on the creative team, uh, particularly the writer and the penciler, so Brad Meltzer and Rags Morales. Do you have any thoughts on on them or? There are other works. Yeah, to be honest, I I think with Brad Meltzer, he's uh, he's someone who came from outside of comics, so he's you know established himself as uh, a novelist, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And I I remember when they brought him in uh, from DC uh, to DC to DC. Um, you know, identity crisis was something that they were really hyping up a lot. And that was the only, that was the first time I had even where knowledge of him had even crossed my mind. So I never read any of his prose novels. I never read any of the other comics that he worked on before this. Um, but, you know, uh, when you're part of a comic, when you're part of the comic book fandom, uh whether you like it or not you 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 become aware of a lot of the things that are coming out that's just the nature of the beast that because they're just constantly churning these things out so um you know when they were making such a big deal about it uh i i i like everybody else you know jumped on the train just because we wanted to know what what all the hullabaloo was about but i don't think i was reading it as it was coming out i didn't i don't think i had the patience to read it one issue at a time over the course of seven months so Mm -hmm. you know i just occupied myself with other things that i could read and then eventually when it was finally collected i just read it um you know as a trade paperback so there was that uh yeah, so in terms of like my knowledge of him, I can't really say that I really had any prior knowledge or opinion of him. Um, like identity crisis for me was really the the thing that determined my opinion of his work. 
Uh, How about in the years since? Have you gone back and checked out his other writing? Uh, I haven't. I will say that when he worked on Justice League, because after Identity Crisis, he he became the the main writer for Justice League of America, and it was I yeah. I think there was a maybe a gap of at least a year or so before he took over Justice League of America. Yeah, yeah, like. I don't know who worked on it before him, but well, the thing is you have to understand like the justice league in the period before it was, you know, it, it was an era where you were just getting hits after hits. Right. Right. You know, right after the Grant Morrison era, you had, uh, Mark Wade, Joe Kelly, and you know, they were just going on and on. It, It was, it was kind of a golden age for the Justice League. So yeah. to follow it up with uh, Brad Metzer, who was their big name at the time, it was like, okay, uh, I guess I'll give it a shot. And I did read a little bit of it. I don't think I even finished that first trade um, because, quite honestly, <laughs> I thought the art was bad. I thought the... Even though the first issue was about them reforming the Justice League and and trying to put together a team, there was something about it that just didn't really jump out at me as it 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 just didn't seem like the version of the team that I necessarily cared about, yeah, or wanted to follow. Um, although I will say, I do have some appreciation for Red Tornado as a character. Oh, so I didn't know that. Yeah, I think he's another one of those kind of quirky uh, characters that fell by the wayside that that I do enjoy, you know, uh, just just because uh, because he's not popular, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I do have some appreciation for Red Tornado. Uh, like, I don't know if I would ever clamor for him to have his own series. Like, he's not like on a level for me that's equivalent to Moon Knight or Namor or Ragman or anything, or even, you know, Captain Marvel, uh, you know, Shazam, Captain Marvel. But, yeah, but, you know, I'm not against him having his own series or, or being in the DC universe. Like I think if they can make him work, I'd like, I'd like that. Anyways, not, not, not to get too far off topic, but yeah, that's my, uh, um, those are my thoughts on Brad Metzer, uh, with Rags Morales, I, I think if I had to put it bluntly, I, I I just have to say I just don't enjoy his art. Like, I he's someone who whose art I I can't necessarily name where I've seen it, but I've seen enough of his art to know that I don't like it, and. It also doesn't help that I'm constantly confusing him with like other artists that I don't necessarily like. <laughs> Who do you confuse his work with? I think I confuse his art with like Ivan Rice or yeah, I, yeah, probably something like Ivan Rice. Uh, Is it Rice or Ivan Rice? Rice, Rias. I'm Reyes. not sure how to pronounce his name. Yeah. Um, heck. I'm pretty like I don't know who drew Injustice, but I'm pretty sure that. Well, no, Rags Morales is. Rags Morales is better than yeah. 
whoever drew Injustice. Yeah, that's true. Okay, okay. I, I, I stopped myself short of actually saying it, so, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I didn't uh, put some put respect him... in his name. <laughs> uh, right before we we wreck on him for the for the majority of two hours, okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'm just not a fan of his art. Like, I'm sure if you put a list of the things that he's worked on right in front of me, I could I could point it out and be like, oh yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. Um, is there anything specific about his artwork that you don't appreciate or don't like? What is it about him that puts him on that list of artists that you don't care for? I just really think that his work is pretty uninteresting to me. Like, I don't necessarily enjoy the way that he makes people look. I don't like the way he draws their faces. Um, Yeah, it just doesn't really do anything for me. Like, I know that that's kind of a, a shallow description but i'm just not impressed like there's i guess stylistically speaking he's unimpressive they're really you know even even when you think about it in terms of like just serviceable like superhero art uh i guess at best i could maybe say that his stuff is serviceable like it's might be consistent if 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 that's what I needed, but he's not someone that I would ever recommend to work on anything that I loved. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. yeah. yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I I would just say his artwork's pretty pretty forgettable to me. Okay, I mean, yeah. If you don't like it, you don't like it. Yeah, I like. I wish I was more adept at technically breaking it down for people uh but yeah that's that's really all i have i don't know how about you drew uh what are your thoughts on either brad metzer meltzer 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 or uh i was about to say ivan rice (laughs) or rags morales (laughs) With Brad Meltzer, I I did read the comic that he had written before Identity Crisis. So, yeah, before Identity Crisis number one came out, I was already familiar with who he was. And he had written an arc of Green Arrow. He wrote, uh, I want to say, it was five or six issues called The Archer's Quest. And this was an arc that came right after Kevin Smith had finished his run on Green Arrow in the early 2000s. So probably around 2002, 2003, thereabouts. Uh, Phil Hester drew that arc uh, just as Hester drew Kevin Smith's run. And at the time, I, I did like that Green Arrow arc. I thought it was pretty fun. It was sort of a trip down, I guess, memory lane, if you will. Because the, the whole concept of green arrow at the time was that ollie oliver queen had been dead for a while he died at some point in the late 90s and then when kevin smith took over the book he came up with a story to show how green arrow comes back to life and 
without getting too deep into the weeds as to how that all worked out, what ends up happening is one of the ideas that Brad Meltzer came up with when he took over is to have Oliver Queen go through his personal history, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, some of the greatest hits of previous stories, specifically the stories that I think Meltzer himself had affection for. And that's mainly like the Silver Age stuff or maybe maybe some 70s stuff. But he had Green Arrow and I can't remember if it was Speedy or if it was his son Connor, but Green Arrow went on a road trip to find all of his old artifacts and things that had been misplaced in the period when he was dead. So it was a chance for the reader to revisit some of his greatest hits. I think in retrospect, looking back at it now, it it really just feels like something that Meltzer wrote purely for himself because it was the kind of thing that he loved and enjoyed, you know, a tribute to the stories of his youth, which I think is something he has in common with Jeff Johns. And I, I think that probably had some influence on how Jeff Johns ended up approaching his superhero writing as well. Mm-hmm. It's fine if you're people who grew up in the same era and generation and enjoyed those stories as well. But I think it could be alienating for people who don't have any particular affection for, uh, you know, let's say, for example, the the truck that Green Arrow and Hal Jordan drove around in during the hard traveling heroes age, right? Like you don't, if you weren't a fan of that period of comics, you probably don't even care about that truck. But it's meaningless to you. Exactly, exactly. But that yeah. truck is like Rosebud to Oliver Queen, you know? It, it's the sled of Citizen Kane or whatever. And it's played up as such. So, it, yeah, I don't know. I mean, at, at the time, I liked the comic. I thought it was pretty good. The art is definitely fun in that comic. And I also found a copy of one of his thriller novels, this one book called The Millionaires, which... I I double checked and it was published in 2002, but I found a cheap remaindered copy of it at a Barnes and Noble or somewhere at one point, and I ended up reading that. Maybe I read it the same summer that Identity Crisis was coming out, but it was something I I did uh, read to completion in a pretty short span of time. I think because it's a thriller, it's one of those books that kind of compels you to keep turning pages until you get to the end so you can see what happens next. But ultimately f- feels like empty calories. Cause here I am probably 18 years later. And I, I don't really remember a single thing about that book. All I remember is the cover and that I owned a copy of it and I read it. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask me to write a book report, man. <laughs> like, I, I guess there's a perspective that you can take on that where, at least it didn't leave an impression on you that was negative. So that's right. more than you can say for a lot of books that we hate. That is true, man. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any hate for the millionaires by Brad Meltzer. Yeah. I don't, I just, uh, don't remember because it's been so long. I, I don't remember the plot or any details about it. I, I, yeah. 
I think if I'm being honest, I, I will have to say that I enjoyed it at the time. But who's to say that I would enjoy it if I reread it now, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess it's worth mentioning, but I don't I don't personally have anything against the idea of doing these types of fan servicey stories that go back and recontextualize uh, uh, comics from a certain era. Like I, I do think that if a writer is talented enough, they can, they can find a way to tell those stories that is fan servicey for them, but also meaningful to me or, yeah, to anyone coming into it. So I, I don't think that by itself that that's something that disqualifies it. You know, absolutely. As, as, yeah, as, I as, I agree a, with that. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, comics has a long history, and I'm I'm open to 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 uh, entertaining myself with it if if it can be done, and that's more than fine by me. So yeah, that's that's all I was. Yeah, there are definitely ways to tell those kinds of stories that pay tribute to the past or homage classic stories of a different era. There's ways to tell those kind of stories in a way that still can intrigue readers who aren't familiar with the illusions and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I I also did read his Justice League of America, and I think that was probably the comic that that uh <laughs> it cemented your opinion of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't think that was very good either. It wasn't very good. I it didn't help that the art was especially bad in that that yeah, that felt I, like it was like a poor man's Michael Turner or something. I think it was Ed Bennis. Uh, yeah, he's yeah. <laughs> like what I don't you about really to say about him. What were you really, about to say yeah, about Ed Bennis and his children, Albert? <laughs> if I was his children, I'd feel pretty ashamed of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would probably tell people that he did almost any other job other than draw comic books. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad Ouch. gets to draw Superman? No, 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 no. He works at DC. He he works in their cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> he makes an honest day's wage, and he feeds the good people that work at DC. <laughs> <laughs> there was a moment back in the mid-early 2000s when Ed Bennis was kind of a big name. He was one of their their uh, star artists for a little while. I I, I do think that in the long view of things, Ed Bennis really is the winner because if you look at DC's house style, it's basically Ed Bennis. Yeah. You know, uh, if, if, yeah, I, if not Ed Bennis, then, you know, Ivan some, Rice. Oh yeah. Then Ivan Rice, exactly. Some variation on it. Like you can, you can definitely see what their house style is and it's, uh, yeah, it's it's very uh, unappealing. aesthetically unappealing. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As for Rags Morales, I don't think I had a 
paid too much attention to him before. I knew he had written, I mean, he had drawn some Hawkman and maybe a little bit of JSA uh, with Jeff Johns, but I wasn't really super familiar with his other work until Identity Crisis. And that was probably the thing that made me uh, recognize his name. Cause then I, at some point I, I realized that a lot of those old Turok dinosaur hunter comics I liked from the nineties, he drew a bunch of those. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and to be honest, those Turok comics look better than identity crisis. Yeah. In my opinion, I liked his, his, uh, younger style before he was fully formed. Yeah. Well, I think that's the other thing that might, you know, that might affect our differing opinions is, uh, you know, I, I did not read Turok back in the day, so I don't really have that connection to him. So, yeah, you know, there we go. Yeah, I, I don't have a ton of love for Rags Morales' art. I think there are definitely panels in Identity Crisis that have some strange anatomy. Uh, I, I don't have it pulled up on my screen right now so I, I don't remember what page or what issue it was but there i remember there was one panel uh where he drew superman uh and it, it's kind of this shot from an angle where you're looking at uh the back of his neck but he's turning his head and the way that he drew superman's neck was it looked strange to me it, it looks like taffy <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but his uh, I think the thing about his art that kind of that I wasn't a fan of in this comic, and I, I don't remember if he does it in his other comics, but it's it stands out egregiously in Identity Crisis because he gives every he draws everybody's eyeballs through their masks. <laughs> you know how usually when you look at these characters with their masks on, it's just plain white. You don't yeah. see any eyeballs or anything like that. <clears throat> Yeah, he he draws everybody's eyeballs in detail. He painstakingly so. draws their eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it it kind of looks a little bit like awkward cosplay. Those are the kind of vibes that it gives me. Maybe the only character that he draws the white slits for the eyes is Batman, but everybody else, uh, like Green Lantern and Green Arrow and Deathstroke, you can see their eyeballs. And that's just an aesthetic choice that I don't really like. I I can't really explain why. I just don't like it. Mm-hmm. But, Maybe it's uh, yeah, just otherwise, unnerving to you. It's unnerving, yeah. I mean, otherwise, to me, his his art's just kind of bland. Like, it's it's fine, you know? Like, it's fine for a superhero comic, but there isn't anything about it that shouts uh, anything too exciting or aesthetically attractive to me. It's workmanlike and professional gets the job done he tells the story maybe maybe that's probably his his best strength is like his layouts or or his eye for communicating the story like in the trade paperback there's a there's a commentary from Meltzer and Morales and they talk about their choices and I can understand and respect some of those things even though I don't necessarily think that the overall final product is very good like I I can see that he's at least putting effort and thought into his craft, you know. Okay. You want to move on with the book discussion, or did you have anything else to say about either of them? 
Any other further condemnations I have for these two men can be disclosed in the context of a dissection of their work. <laughs> you want <laughs> you want it to be justified. <laughs> this isn't a yeah. personal attack on these men. It's I want not them a personal attack. I'm, I'm that not... they have earned my ire. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Everything that we are about to say, they had coming to them. <laughs> okay, okay. I want bullet points to detail what it is. I want a listicle <laughs> to show why I hate them. <laughs> Top 10 reasons why identity crisis is bad on CBR.com. Or <laughs> screenrant.com or whatever. Uh, all right. So, you know, as we as as we've done in the past with our top twenty-five Marvel comics, we're pro we're gonna approach this uh, our the discussion about identity crisis in the same fashion by going over the four uh criteria and just breaking it down according to its uh you know what we think of its craft what we think of its originality what we think of its impact and what we think of its uh ability to withstand the test of time so yeah we can just go right into it uh let's start off with the craft then drew okay so by craft i would say we're we're asking ourselves if this comic is technically sound, is it well written, well drawn, and did they did the creators demonstrate mastery of the language and form of comics? But I, I think what stands out first and foremost to me is the 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 fact that Identity Crisis is presented as a mystery comic centered around the murder of uh of sue dibney uh, so yeah we're we're also going to be spoiling the comic moving forward so uh prepare yourselves if yeah. you're sitting be prepared to grasp your armrests to dig your nails deep <laughs> into the wood of your of your chair's uh armrest <laughs> <laughs> If you need a mouth guard or some sort of mouthpiece to bite down on, <laughs> then do so now. <laughs> yeah, so a big part of the story is this mystery of who killed Sue Dibney. And it, it starts off, the story starts off with her husband, elongated man, out on patrol, uh, I think with Firehawk or some other jobber hero. Yeah, leaving Sue Dibney. Firebird, but oh, or maybe it was Firebird. I, I get them mixed up. I don't even know. You is Firehawk even a person? <laughs> is Elongated Man a person? Well, okay. Is is Firehawk like a character that exists in comics? <laughs> I I thought that character was Firehawk, but I I could very well be mistaken because that's how unimportant that character yeah, was to me. <laughs> that's true. It ultimately it doesn't matter. You're right. It's just another jobber character that's just there to to be there. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So Sue Dibney is alone at her home, and she's preparing, uh, I guess, a little celebration for her husband when he gets back because it 
what is it, a birthday or anniversary or something, and and on top of that, she's pregnant and is excited to share the news. Yeah. But well, what we, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to clarify that the way that they set it up is that it's his birthday, but because he's like such a great detective, she can't uh, ever surprise him on his actual birthday because he always figures it out. So right. what she does is she plans it for a completely unexpected time and place or whatever. Uh, but, but yeah, I like that's, I guess that's neither not, not, not super important, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So we see that she gets assaulted or attacked in her home and we don't really get a view of who's attacking her. And eventually, uh, you know, we see her body get tossed around and get torched by fire. And then she does try to call for help. An elongated man makes it home too late. All he can do is cradle her burned corpse in his arms. Uh, and, you know, it's all, it's all very tragic and heavy. But most of the rest of the story is spent trying to figure out who did this because the this superheroes at the heart. Yeah. Like number one, uh, the superheroes homes all have these advanced security systems that can ideally prevent these sorts of intrusions. Then on top of that, at the crime scene, you have Batman and Mr. Miracle and the metal man and all these other characters the ray like all these characters with various abilities to detect everything in every spectrum that you can imagine they're all investigating the scene trying to figure out who could possibly uh get in there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it basically all comes to nothing because as we get to the end as the story progresses when we get closer to the end uh dr midnight finishes his autopsy and basically because of that they figure out who did it so it's almost like the entire the entirety of the plot could have been sidestepped if the heroes had just waited for the autopsy but the other thing is that dr midnight is supposed to be this really great doctor right he's like the best doctor in the dc universe or something Mm mm-hmm but it, it seems like it takes him a bunch of weeks to complete the autopsy, which doesn't feel very believable. You know, they live in a superhero world with access to all sorts of advanced technology. And clearly in the story, you see that multiple weeks pass. So why would it take him that long to complete an autopsy? Hmm. Uh, that's not a rhetorical question. I'm, I'm asking you, Albert, because I still don't understand it. Oh, well... <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I mean, if you're looking for an answer for me, I, I actually don't. If I had to be perfectly honest, I don't think that that element of it is necessarily the one that bothers me quite as much. It certainly didn't bother me as much as it's obviously bothering you. <laughs> but um, I think I, I think that's poor storytelling, though, because it it makes all the heroes seem super impotent. Like, everybody's just doing stuff because it's a superhero's job to punch bad guys, but they're not actually 
accomplishing anything or uncovering any information to unravel the mystery or figure out who the killer is or even contribute anything meaningful to the story. Well, I think... I think if the way that I look at it is if you look at Brad Metzer's or what I guess what his goal in it is that he wants to tell a story about the superheroes being vulnerable and, you know, just how they would respond to a situation that I think a lot of us as readers of superhero uh, comics I think it's 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 something that we constantly think about as as the greatest harm that could come to them, right? And and it's the the idea that a supervillain or a criminal would ever reach you in your most vulnerable place Whoa. is. Are you talking about that time when we learned Peter Parker was molested? <laughs> Uh no no but that's a discussion for another time for sure, but okay. but I was gonna say like you know it, it's it's something that they don't really we've never really seen addressed it's always something that that that's teased in 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 mainstream superhero comics because you know at the end of the day uh for the longest time at the end of the day um. Again, they they play with the idea that your super that your secret identity gets revealed and you know you know to the worst possible person and then ultimately it all for whatever reason goes back to the status quo, right? So I could imagine a story Brad Metzer wanting to tell a story about you know what happens when the the worst possible person finds out about who you are and what the effects of that could be potentially long term right like i i think conceptually that's not some that's not an idea that i don't have a problem with the the idea that this story is really just a setup for us to view these heroes with all these powers being vulnerable and like you said being impotent like i i guess i don't really have too much of an issue with that um you should have an issue with that because the story is focused around the mystery and the crime solving aspect i think if he didn't spend so much time focusing the story and the narrative around the crime solving then what you said would be totally valid because conceptually the story works on that emotional level of, you know, the worst nightmare of a superhero coming to life. Yeah. You know, yeah, that idea, that idea works as a concept, but the execution of that idea by focusing so much of the narrative on divulging, unraveling this mystery it's it's really bad writing man Mm. yeah i yeah i i don't know like i it's it's what i was saying was just that i don't know 
I guess my question to you would be, what 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 does the ideal version of that story look like then? Like, what's a better version of that of what he do, uh, what of what Brad Metzer did? I guess Meltzer. Meltzer, yeah. I think if the autopsy didn't take as long as it did in the comic, and it just took about the same amount of time as you know, you would expect a an autopsy in real life to take, then the heroes would have had the clues that they needed a lot quicker. And I mean, it probably would have been a different story, but I, yeah, I think you could have avoided a lot of the pointlessness of some of the other events that occur, like the, I don't know, things like the death of Firestorm that wouldn't have happened, you know, because they're they wouldn't be out there running around fighting Shadow Thief or whatever. Yeah. And well, it, it's, huh? No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I think it it's just a matter of tightening up the plot, you know, because so so much of these seven issues are spent showing superhero things that don't really need to be done but they only mm. happen because the heroes have nothing to do while they're waiting for this autopsy so they're just left to their own devices and their own devices typically means they're going to look for some bad guys to punch yeah yeah i yeah i i think i do have i definitely have issues with this book but I, I think I can't honestly say that the the idea that the autopsy is necessarily or, or or yeah the idea that the autopsy that too much stuff went on between the murder and the the autopsy and the revelation of that autopsy. Um, yeah, the the idea that so much went on in 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 that in between time, it, I don't think that that's something that bothers me quite so much. But we will definitely get into what it is about this story that does bother me. Right. Okay, like I how, I do how about this? <laughs> Another element of the yeah. mystery that shows how poorly it's crafted is yeah. when we learn how Jean Loring, the Adam's ex-wife, killed Sue. We learn that she does that thing that the Atom always does, which is shrinks real small down and then jumps into a phone line and yeah. rides that uh, into the other phone line that you know she can appear out of. I, don't ask me how the physics of that work. I don't even understand that. It's just you know your comic book science, but seeing as how that's what she did to get into sue dibney's house mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how come none of those superheroes investigating the crime scene how come how come batman the <laughs> world's greatest detective looked around for clues found nothing out of place not a single fiber or carpet rug hair or whatever was moved around out of place like nobody touched the windows no fingerprints no genetic material whatsoever how come the world's greatest detective didn't even think to look at sue dibney's phone records 
Yeah. I I would actually agree with that. Like I do think that the actual revelation was pretty pretty stupid. Um there were some other things too. Like very early on they talk about how like you mentioned every every family member that's connected to a super person basically has access to the world's maybe the universe's most advanced home security system, right? Mhm. So there's all these different ways, all these different methods by which uh the family members of super people are protected. And yeah, in spite of all that, she's able to 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 get in there and uh Jean Loring is able to, you know, shrink herself down to the size of an atom, go inside Sue Dibney's brain and basically give her a stroke that kills her, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, at one point, they even mentioned that, you know, they've got all these super people in the house using their various abilities and powers to investigate the area. And at one point, they even say that Animal Man was in there. And Animal Man has the power of, you know, all of the world's animals, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, uh, theoretically speaking, he should have, like, the the ability to use his, you know, superhuman scent to to be able to smell out anything and anyone, right? And in the final scene... Uh, where it's revealed that Jean Loring is the one who's in there. She's like fully grown. She's got a trench coat on. She's got a flamethrower backpack on. And she's decided to set Sue Dibney on fire because, hey, guess what? <laughs> like, I need to get rid of the evidence. So she's fully, she's full size at this point. And you're telling me that she didn't leave any scent for Animal Man, animal man to pick up? <laughs> Especially when, in the middle of the book, when she tries to fake her own uh, murder, when like yeah, she she basically tries to fake her own murder so that she can get the sympathies of Ray Palmer and the superhero community on her side, and you know, so they they don't expect her to be the the you know one of the suspects, like. I imagine that the same process would have occurred when they were investigating her home. And if Animal Man was there, you're telling me he wouldn't have recognized that her smell was the same as the smell in the in <laughs> in Sue's house? Like, yeah, that's a good so, point. So I will say that that aspect of the mystery does does fall flat to me, and it is something that if this was a better comic, maybe I could ignore it, but. It, it it's not something that I can really ignore. And for all of their vaunted technology in these specialized security systems, I guess none of these systems has any kind of electronic recording inside the home. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty weird to think about. If Maybe you're outside of the house, <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. fortress. <laughs> yeah. Once but you're inside, you anything step can happen. Foot inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you want to hear a funny theory that was floating around back when this series was being serialized what's that so the first issue presents a bunch of little scenes of different of various characters right to kind of set up 
the mystery and to plant red herrings and whatnot. So you have this one scene early on for no real reason, honestly, but there's a scene of Nightwing at the cemetery visiting his his uh parents' grave and he's wearing a trench coat. But later on in the issue, when you see the attack on Sue, there's a panel of a trench-coated figure holding a flamethrower pointed at her head who says, goodbye, Sue. So people were thinking that Nightwing was the one who killed Sue. That's pretty weird. Yeah. I I don't know why he would do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was a popular theory back in the day, man. <laughs> It was Nightwing all along. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, dude, he's Batman's protege, so he knows how to sneak in there and do all the things he can do to avoid getting detected by Batman. And that's why he was able to do it, man. And he was (laughs) he did it. His motivation was because he was mad that his parents died. (laughs) So he took it out on Sue Dibney. (laughs) Okay. Jeez. Okay. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty funny what people were theorizing yeah. back in 2004. But I do think that Meltzer probably wrote himself into some sort of a corner, um, you know, because he had to. He when you tell a murder mystery. In especially in a world where super beings exist, there are just too many routes that are vulnerable for for upon further uh, analysis, right? Mm-hmm. So I I feel like the idea that okay, let let's say that you buy into the science that. Um, you know, sound waves travel from point A to point B, and when you shrink yourself down to the size of a micron or an atom, that you can ride uh, a sound wave or a radio signal from point A to point B, and that's that's how that uh, that's how your voice carries over over phone signals or whatever, right? And mm-hmm. that's how, as as a microscopic entity, she was able, Gene Loring was able to get from point A to point B, and she ends up flying inside Sue Dibney's brain and giving her a stroke. Okay. Sure. But then they need to throw the red herring in of, okay, how do you destroy the evidence to to throw the readers off? Not just the readers off, but also the superheroes. Well, she's got to burn Sue Dibney. She's, some, she's, someone's got to set her on fire, right? Because, you know... I've I've watched enough true 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 crime documentaries, and whenever someone tries to cover up a a a crime scene, you know everybody gets it in their head that fire is the way to do it. If you set a fire, if you burn the place down, then all the evidence is gone, and no one will have anything to to go by, right? Okay. But but in order for her to do that, she has to get full size, and she has to leave evidence, and yeah. she doesn't even burn the house down; she just burns the area. <laughs> where Sue Dibney is, so like maybe maybe that's why Animal Man couldn't smell her, man, because all he smelled was burnt toast. Uh, I don't know, I don't know if that's something that 
that throws off dogs. I don't think that's how dogs work, man. <laughs> <laughs> See? But that's the thing. If if she had just flown in there into Sue's head in large, gave her a stroke, and Sue and Jean and Sue dies, and Jean's just like, What have I done? <laughs> then it's like, okay. Like, I think it's a shorter mystery then, because at that point, the the obvious thing to check is what's wrong with her body, right? Like uh that that's that's obviously where the autopsy goes but but then again it's a substantially different story at that point because there is no real mystery so they they had to throw all this other stuff in there to heighten the sense of drama and heighten the sense of mystery and once he did that Brad Meltzer just kind of messed up whatever mystery he was already setting up right and I feel like if he had just taken more time to like workshop that a little, then maybe there were, there could have been a more convincing uh, reason for why no one could, no one would know it was Gene. You certainly have to ignore a lot of stuff, yeah, or ignore a lot of the way that their powers work in order to tell yourself that she got away scot free from Sue's home after committing the murder yeah yeah Yeah. it requires too many leaps of logic yeah so there we go what other thoughts did you have regarding the overall craft of the story i think there's also a lot of plot elements that really have nothing to do with the story that are just thrown in there i think some of those things you can argue are included as red herrings of a sort like there's again going back to the first issue uh, i mentioned that scene with nightwing mm-hmm. uh and then there's an extended sequence with that jobber villain bolt getting into a shootout in that alleyway like that's a pretty big amount of space to dedicate to a whole lot of nothing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh i mean maybe there are some scenes here and there where they show characters with their families and i i guess that's supposed to coincide with the themes of the story which is that when a family member of another superhero gets killed all of the other family members benefit because it motivates heroes into spending more time with their loved ones and appreciating them while they have them Mm -hmm. so i i understand that but there's also other stuff like uh the character boomerang meeting his son his son who's probably like i don't know if not an older teenager, he's he's he seems like he could be in his early twenties or something. Like they, there's a lot of space dedicated to that, and I don't really understand what the point of that was, unless unless Meltzer was just trying to show us that even supervillains think about family also, or if he just wanted to tug on the heartstrings a bit after uh, Boomerang gets killed, doing one last job. Yeah, but I don't know. To me, that that whole thing with his son is totally pointless, and all it really did uh, was give Jeff Johns a new uh, character to work with when he was writing Flash at the time. Yeah. So it, it feels more like planting seeds for another comic, which I guess is fine, but it doesn't make it. It doesn't help this story, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I do then, think. Oh, oh yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say like. I guess you could make the argument that 
it's it's kind of what you were saying earlier where you know boomerang is sort of a foil for the heroes in the sense that it's like you said um you know villains apparently think about family too but overall i'd I'd happen to agree that throwing that in there it just it didn't make too much sense on top of that the the way that their relationship unfolded really didn't make so much sense to me either because it's very emotionally inauthentic yeah because boomerang is supposedly this deadbeat dad absentee father and then who's never met his son until this story exactly and then over the span of a couple of issues uh due to like some tabloids releasing this information um they build this rapport with one another and next thing you know this kid over over the course of just a couple of days finds it enough finds enough in himself to take up the mantle of boomerang once he gets murdered or once he gets shot. Yeah. Which like, I I don't know, man, that doesn't really seem to make too much sense to me that anybody would move that quickly right after just meeting his dad for the first time. Right. Like if you're, if you're already, let's say, 20 years old and you've grown up without your father the whole time and he just shows up in your life yeah are you really going to feel that close to him in such a short span of time it feels unrealistic to me yeah at worst you're resentful of them at best you're it's complicated to them Yeah. yeah yeah exactly so the idea that we're gonna we're gonna have a good old time we're gonna sip beers and throw boomerangs with each other and yeah, it's like playing how normal kids would play catch with a baseball in the yeah, park with their yeah, dad or something. Exactly. And like after a couple of hangouts like that, like I'm gonna feel so close to you that when when you get murdered breaking into someone's home, uh, I'm gonna feel the need to take revenge on superheroes because of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And on top of that, two other things that make it pretty stupid is that. He has the the son has superpowers. He has super speed, and we we don't know who the actual mother is, so they leave that up in the air for Jeff Johns to answer in uh-huh. Flash. And then secondly, if you think about the logistics of timing, it's pretty strange because this kid, let's say he's 20 years old, right? So that means Captain Boomerang has been operating for about 20 something years. Yeah, which means that. Uh, Barry Allen, he was fighting Barry Allen like two decades ago and Barry Allen once fought alongside Batman, right? So like how old is Batman supposed to be now? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's like the more you think about it, the more the sweater unravels when you just yeah. tug on the thread. Yeah. It's It's a bad plot element to introduce. Like, yeah, I don't, I long really lost son. Yeah, I don't know what what his overall goal. I don't know what Meltzer's overall goal was in trying to to put that in there. I, I think you're right. It's probably just something that's meant to tug at your heartstrings. You know, when you see him get 
killed by uh, Tim Drake's dad. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Another plot element that just gets shoehorned into the book for no real reason at all. Well, I mean, I think I know the reason, but it's not a reason that serves the book's purpose. But I'm thinking of Firestorm's death scene. Uh-huh. So this is when the heroes are banding together looking for the killer. So they're just tracking down all these various supervillains who have the potential of sneaking into a place undetected. And he and Firestorm and a, f- a couple other heroes, I think, I want to say Captain Marvel and who is it, Vixen and Shining Knight. You know, it, it takes all f- four of them for some reason to take yeah. on the Shadow Thief, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Yeah, it's, it's pretty sad. <laughs> Firestorm on his own should be able to mess up Shadow Thief, man. Like, yeah, exactly. He's exactly. like one of the most powerful beings in the in the known universe. <laughs> exactly. But Shadow Thief, because he's a thief, man, he steals Shining Knight's sword and uses it to stab Firestorm. And that's enough to cause him to go into a nuclear meltdown and he ends up exploding to death uh, in the sky. And it just gets thrown in there where this longtime DC hero gets killed like that. Uh, Yeah, it's like, what was the point of that other than to launch a new comic book starring a new Firestorm? Yeah, yeah. But within the context of the story itself, it, it serves no purpose other than, I guess, ramping up the body count to show you that even the serious conduct yeah it's serious these are serious times and people are putting their lives on the line you know what it makes me think of now that i'm talking with you about it it hello are you there yeah yeah i'm just waiting with bated breath i was so i was anticipating uh your your reasoning so much that i i couldn't even bring myself to <laughs> say what does it remind you of man <laughs> but but trust me dude I, i'm waiting eagerly for what you have to say well here's a little behind the scenes sometimes we have connectivity issues here and like well sometimes if the pause goes too long it, i i worry that uh, uh drew fell off the call so it's <laughs> It's made me a uh, a nervous wreck doing this podcast. Dude, that that wasn't even the longest pause we've had this episode. It wasn't. It wasn't. But still, you know, like I I can't help but wonder anytime there's any kind of a pause whether we're, I'm still talking to you or whether you've been dropped and <laughs> you know, I'm just talking for no actual purpose <laughs> to no one. <laughs> But anyways, um, yeah, I was going to say, it feels like Meltzer was trying to do, he was, I feel like his take on, on the heroes was basically, it was basically like him trying to do a cop story, right? Where something happens to a family member of a cop and there's this mystery surrounding the the assault, whatever the the in inciting assault is and mm-hmm. as a result because the cops are you know impotent and because they don't know what else to do it's about them being in a state of panic and just you know observing them in what they what they in doing what they can under 
the limited cir- uh, uh, power of their circumstances, right? Yeah. And I think I think that's not inherently something that I have problems with, but yeah, like it—it's just a different sort of situation when you're doing a superhero story, and I don't think he necessarily took all of that into account. You know, like it almost feels right. like that was his approach. Was you know, I want to do a story where you know the cops are attacked in their most vulnerable place, and just the emotional and just observing the emotional uh, spiral that they go through as they just you know, lash out and try to do anything because they don't know what else to do. And, you know, I get that. I do. Maybe the story would have worked better if you wrote about actual cops. I think so. Right? Like, I I think that would have made a lot more sense because the limitations would have made more sense and Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have required us to make these gymnastic... uh, Mental uh, gymnastics. Mental, yeah, to take these mental gymnastics to try to make sense of the things that he couldn't explain away. Right. So, yeah. There's a thought. Yeah. Yeah, apparently more thought than they put into this story. Yeah. I, I, and that's the other thing is just... I, I wonder, like, I don't know what it was like to be in a writer's room room with him when he was doing all this. But I wonder if at some point he just went, you know, just kind of threw up his hands and was like, okay, I don't know if I'm just going to take it on faith that no one's going to ask these questions, you know, or, Mm -hmm. or if he just went, I don't want to think about this anymore. Like to, to, to that degree, to that level. So I'm just going to not ask the question and hopefully Nobody thinks about it, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's never really a good approach to take, quite honestly. Yeah, you're right, you're right. One of the other elements of identity crisis that stands out to me is something I mentioned when I discussed Meltzer's Green uh, Green Arrow story, which is how he has this love for a specific era of the Justice League, and I think he wanted to highlight the stories of his youth. Maybe it's not necessarily a, a bad thing in terms of an idea, because I think he was trying to give us reason to sort of recontextualize older stories and introduce an element of darkness to them to make those stories in retrospect seem more interesting than they actually are. But the various flashbacks and the little Easter eggs to old stories, I don't know. It it didn't really do anything for me. It it didn't make me want to go revisit the story where the Justice League and the Secret Society swapped bodies or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, if anything, it just highlighted how silly some of those old stories were and when you try to take those zany stories from a different age, from the Silver Age or whenever it was, you know, I don't really feel like it's necessary because those old comics, they should stand on their own and, and that's fine. Like, it, there's no reason to 
try so hard to show that there was more to those stories all along. Yeah. It feels like it's an exercise in trying to reconcile the fictional history of the Justice League in a way that this event where something as silly as we swapped minds with our arch nemeses, but we have to be able to explain that away for contemporary readers. Like we it's it's pretending that this thing actually happened and then trying to explain it to modern readers by saying, well, if they actually switch places, you would think that the first thing that they would do is peek under the mask to see who your secret, what your secret identity is. Yeah. So how come no one's ever addressed that? But the reality of it is contemporary, contemporary readers probably never read those, or if they did, they never really thought to ask themselves why didn't they ever look under the mask? <laughs> you know, it just didn't seem important enough to ask about. Do you remember that one episode of Justice League Unlimited when Lex Luthor and the Flash Wally West swapped minds or swapped bodies? I never actually watched the episode, but I did see some of the clips of that on YouTube. And, see, you know, that was hilarious because Lex Luthor's mind was in the Flash's body and once he realized that he was using his powers and when he had a quiet moment, he went into a bathroom to hide from the people who were chasing him. And he was like, well, if nothing else, at least I can learn the Flash's secret identity. So he stands in front of the mirror, takes off his mask, looks at himself. And then he says, I have no idea who this is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Like, I can understand with Batman because Bruce Wayne's a famous person, right? But as far as those other people, like how would how would the average person know who the heck Barry Allen was or uh whoever else was in there in that group, you know? Like it that's weird to me. Yeah. Yeah, it it's yeah, again, it's just one of those things where if you pull the, on the thread a little too much, if you overthink it, it just it just takes away from the entirety of the reading experience because all you end up doing is spending more time and energy just trying to, you know, s fit a square peg in a round hole. Exactly. In instead of spending the story fearing what's going to happen to the next hero's loved ones or you know, thinking about the themes of family and, and identity, we're just questioning, wait, how did this happen? Or why is this, why did this silly <laughs> thing uh, work the way it works? You know, like, it, it's totally unneeded. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think a lot of the other stuff that he ends up doing with those past stories isn't very good either with the the various retcons. Because he takes, he takes those more innocent stories and adds more uncomfortable elements to them with the rape of Sue Dibney in the past and the mind wipes of the villains and of Batman. Like all of that stuff is shocking. But again, it's, it's all questionable stuff. And even the mind wipes, I, I feel like 
if you think about that too hard, it it kind of unravels. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I don't even want to think about it on that level. I think the 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 issue with that for me is that it, it's what you were saying earlier. It's the uncomfortable nature of it all, right? It's just that it's this it's this idea that we're going to take these heroes and we're going to add layers to them and apparently adding layers to them means making them do just terrible things to one another. Yeah. You know? So So yeah, it's it's I think overall it just affects the overall reading experience because now you're just in this place where it just leaves an unsavory taste in your mouth when you're reading about these characters. And then there's the whole issue of like what this does for like the entire line moving forward. Right. Because they, they've built in this added element of drama now and you can't just ignore it because, you know, when they go back to the main series, it, it would feel weird to just (laughs) ignore the fact that, Hey, green arrow, and some of the other Justice League members went out of their way to violate Batman's mind, so... Yeah. But we're okay now, right? <laughs> I mean, to because... be fair, the stories that came out in the aftermath of this did focus on that, but I I think those because those stories were bad, too, I have even less affection for what this story did. <laughs> well, exactly. It's, it's, but those stories wouldn't have needed to exist... If they, if this story didn't exist, exactly, is, is Identity the thing. Crisis gave us a lot of stuff that was pretty questionable from uh, the Brother Eye project and or uh, the OMAC project and all the stuff that Batman ended up doing because he couldn't trust his fellow heroes. Yeah, and that led us to uh, what other Infinite Crisis, and that was another pretty bad comic. Yeah. And and the the other thing that I noticed that was pretty weird when when you stop and think about it is like it almost feels like they're aware of what they're doing too because while they're doing while they're doing all this while they're revealing all these things about the heroes and like just the the awful things that they've done uh in in the service of justice or whatever right Mm-hmm. Like, it, it feels like they made a conscious effort to separate Superman from all this because they, it almost felt like they knew what they were doing and, like, tainting Superman would have been a step too far. So, <laughs> But it's okay to taint Batman? Yeah, apparently, right? Because the whole time they they put him, they put Superman outside of all of this so this stuff happens when Superman's not around and, you know, they have these conversations and they, they tease the fact that, oh, Superman can hear everything. So he, you know, he must he only want to hear. He, exactly. He hears what he wants to hear. Right. So even that plays with the idea that even Superman might be kind of a jerk on some level, <laughs> but but they don't outright say it. Right. They, right. they leave it to you as the reader to interpret that how you will. 
It's mm-hmm. like okay, mm-hmm. but but yeah, once once you get into this place where you know if Doctor Light sexually assaulted Sue Dibney and Superman just went around going, "Hey citizens, <laughs> like <laughs> ha cha cha, what's <laughs> what's going what's going on, fellow citizens? How's how are things in the world today? You know, <laughs> like." It, and he just goes back to ignoring that and not doing something about it, then it's it's just this weird discrepancy with all the characters. But So I, I do think there's this element of them, again, wanting to have their cake and and eat it too. Have their cake and eat it too. It's, it's just... Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't... Mm-hmm. I think whenever a writer is put in that position... And and they want to be all things to all people, and again try to have their cake and eat it. Like I they end up being nothing to no one. Exactly, exactly. That's never a route you want to go as a writer. You you either want to commit to whatever you're trying to do, or you shouldn't do it. And this was a case where they probably shouldn't have done it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Speaking yeah. of things that they shouldn't have done, we need to talk about the rape because that pretty egregious and unnecessary and i i think especially with the passage of time i feel like it's pretty clear that that was a very questionable decision yeah another example of you know women in refrigerators and amping up the stakes by raping a woman because what's what's more what's deadlier than that you know like how do you know that the heroes are in trouble when unless their women get raped yeah, but it's yeah. it's such a it's such a thing that's so out of place in mainstream DC comics that as a reader you can't help but be taken out by that. You know, it's like this is I know they're trying to be serious, but as a reader, it's it's just corny as hell, man. Yeah, and the way that they draw Doctor Light when when he's after in in the aftermath of that. Like, again, I get that they're trying to show that he was more animal than man at this point, And, you know, his tongue was all sticking out and he's like, <laughs> you know, you, you know, this just this dude being gross. But it's so over the, the top. Of his lust, man. Yeah, but it's so over the top where it's like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> like, it almost makes me want to go, what are you doing? What are you guys doing? This you're treating this almost like it's it's a wrestling match or something. You're you're making it. It's it's far too uh I, I don't have any other word for it, but it almost feels like they're sensationalizing it and yeah. they really shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. You're I'm looking at that panel in I think it's issue two here where the the league has just returned to the satellite in the aftermath and they've they caught Dr. Light in the act of raping Sue. And now Green Lantern has Dr. Light locked up or, or chained up to, you know, one of his constructs. And then Dr. Light is just talking trash to them, letting them know that he did what he did. And he's showing them, he's using his light powers to show them a holographic replay of what he did to Sue. Even that? What is that? <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> like that panel with him showing them that and sticking out his tongue, it... It's like you said, very sensationalized, and 
maybe you can make the argument that he was acting that way just, you know, to piss off the heroes. But it it, it just feels so clunky, man, as a reader. It's in bad taste. Yeah, it just feels like it's in bad taste. Like, it's weird to me to think that Brad Meltzer's idea of taking the stories of his youth and making them more relevant and recontextualizing them for a modern audience was to add more rape to them. That that yeah. is weird to me, man. I don't I don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. It's it's, it's not even like I'm saying that bad guys never rape people because they obviously do. We we live in a pretty messed up world, but in these DC comics with these with these characters, is that really something that that you want to include in there? Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand that. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's, I think it's always questionable. Like, I feel. On the one hand, it feels like there almost shouldn't be any subject that you can't broach Mm -hmm. because you want to be able to tell any and all kinds of stories. And the hope is that people will do it in a dignified way, in a respectful way, in a thought-provoking way, something that doesn't waste the platform that you have. Right. Right. And, but this and I don't, just felt tasteless. Yeah, exactly. And and I don't... I can't necessarily say that... I, I acknowledge that maybe one for one person, someone out there might have looked at this and might have thought, oh, that's... Yeah, that's... Uh, you know, that's... Uh, <sighs> artistic or whatever right but i it's it's hard for me to justify that in 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 viewing this work um it just Mm -hmm. yeah it it just makes ultimately it just feels like it makes light of it more than it yeah it 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 uses it it as a prop Mm -hmm. for 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 a heightened effect more than it does to actually view the violation as something to be examined on its own, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't treat it with any level of seriousness that you would expect to find. It's it's a prop for these heroes, most of them male, yeah. uh, deciding uh, that they need to take drastic measures to prevent it from happening again. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just not handled in a respectful way, I th- I think. It it really isn't. And and you know what? Here's here's what I would say. Think like talking it out with you now and working working my way through it. But if they really did want to discuss that that subject in a way that had any validity or any value like they would have shown sue dibney in 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 you know dealing with it exactly it would have been a story about her 
dealing with this thing that happened to her. But as it yeah, is, they could have really portrayed her about with, it, with dignity. But yeah, the only it, time we ever really see the only time we ever really see Sue in this comic is when she gets murdered and when she gets raped. Yeah, or just so maybe being a, this a, loving a couple flash wife. a couple flashback scenes when when we see how she met Ralph. But that's really about it. Yeah. She's such a non-entity. Yeah. In 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 the course of this series, there there's something wrong with that. There is, man. Yeah. This next item I wanted to bring up isn't as severe as inserting rape into the story, but that Deathstroke fight in one of those issues, I forget if it was issue 3 or 4, but uh, you know the fight I'm talking about when Deathstroke fights the a specific lineup of the Justice League. Yeah, it's issue three. Yeah. I I had pretty big problems with that fight. I thought that was horribly written and just super lazy writing. Uh, it, it was it, him taking on the Flash, Hawkman, Zatanna, uh, Black Canary, Green Arrow, Green Lantern. So yeah, these aren't and even elongated scrubs. man and the oh, yeah. atom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. They were in there too. So these weren't even scrubs. These like some of these are pretty heavy hitters. Exactly. And exactly. For... And he he beats them all pretty easily. Yeah. And that it's... that never made sense to me. Like I get the idea of wanting to make Deathstroke this quote unquote cooler character, or you know they wanted he wanted to make. Deathstroke a badass, basically, or yeah, the exactly. villain version of Batman who has a plan to take down everybody. But this isn't the way to do it because it just makes the heroes act stupid. Yeah. And it makes you question uh Meltzer's understanding or his interpretation of how these characters' powers have already been portrayed in various other comics. Like I, I think some of this stuff is a little clever. Like the the thing about uh, Deathstroke slicing off Hawkman's harness, like that made me laugh, man. Like it's it's a funny <laughs> idea. <laughs> <laughs> or Deathstroke slicing off the what do you call the end of those arrows? That, the tips. You know, oh no, tip. those are the tips. The... No, not the the other end, the feathered part. That's but, not a quiver, is it? The quiver is the thing that holds the arrows. Okay. But, yeah, the way that Deathstroke uses his sword to slice off those ends of the arrows so that Ollie can't properly use them. Yeah. There's something clever about that. Like, those two things make sense. If he was just fighting Green Arrow and and Hawkman, that's the kind of thing you would expect. But you have him doing this thing against the Flash where he, before the fight even started, he planted three bombs in the ground uh, in front of him, surrounding himself at these specific angles so that he could predict exactly where Wally would use his super speed to attack him. And once he knows that angle of attack, he just points his sword in that direction and Wally runs into his sword. I, I really have a tough time believing that would happen, man. Yeah. Wally's reflexes are too quick for that. 
Yeah, but exactly. We just get we just get this bit of narration from Green Arrow where he says something like, uh, "He may not be able to outrun Wally, but he's quicker where it counts." <laughs> I don't like, know. This that, is a guy who who can run at the speed of light. Like you're telling me that in the span of a couple of seconds, he can't just. <laughs> like, right. Is he that reckless? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then there's that whole bit of narration again from Ollie where he says the average person uses 10% of his brain's total or potential capacity. Slade uses almost 90. <laughs> <laughs> uses 90% of his brain capacity, dude. That's why he's it's such so a good corny. fighter. <laughs> so corny. <sighs> okay, and then the scene where he takes out Zatanna he he hits her in the i don't know the the lungs or something or right under her her rib cage aiming for her liver is what it says and then Zatanna is shocked for a moment where she's there's a panel where she says she stammers what would you and then she collapses to the ground and and uh starts to to vomit so she can't say her spell yeah but it feels like if she had the ability to say what do you and before she gets cut off, she could have probably said something. She could have finished her spell. She exactly. was already like. Exactly. She was mostly done with it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's another thing where they wanted to tell this story about. Or they wanted to set up this scene where, like you said, where Deathstroke is going to be a badass. So they stack the deck against him. But. They they sort of overreached because they had guys like Green Lantern. Like I thought yeah, the way the so they beat Green the, Lantern, wait, that was pretty whack. <laughs> that was that was super whack. I also want to talk about how he beats the Atom because that that was pretty questionable too. The the way that Deathstroke because he uses ninety percent of his brain, right? He he can <laughs> he can see molecules, you know? He can see something that's microscopic and he just uses this laser pointer and the power of science to defeat the atom that that makes no sense and like you were saying with green lantern even though cal is not as experienced as those other green lanterns at this point in the dc universe he's been green lantern for quite some time you know like he's not a rookie scrub anymore yeah this is 2004 and and cal rayner knows what's up he's not going to just use his ring hand to throw a punch at Deathstroke when he knows Deathstroke is a much better hand-to-hand fighter and Kyle can just give himself a personal force field and then float up, you know, fly so Deathstroke can't reach him and just use a construct to capture him. He could him. just be blasting him from the sky. Exactly. <laughs> he could blast him from orbit. <laughs> exactly. He could, that's what he, he could have done a million other things with his imagination, but instead all he does is throw a simple punch which Deathstroke quickly catches his fist and breaks his fingers and then uses his own willpower to try to bend the will the I ring to his him. himself. <laughs> exactly. Which I don't think that's how the Guardians uh, designed the rings. Because that, that'd be a pretty pathetic weapon if somebody could just grab your hand and then out willpower you. Yeah. It's it's it almost feels like it's a situation where if I'm touching the ring, then 
I can force my willpower on it, and that internal mental struggle should be enough to mess you up. Which yeah. is a pretty silly, silly way to 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 use the power. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's exceptionally so, silly. so stupid. Yeah, yeah, and and that's not even the first time that they disrespect him. I mean, that's not even the only time that they disrespect Kyle in the comic. Later on, he uh, mm-hmm. they they attack the this other band of villains, and Kyle shows up again and. This time he doesn't mess around. He he puts Deadshot in a box, right? Yeah, yeah. And Deadshot, you know, he's he's just such a good shot. What he does is he fires a bullet in there, and the bullet ricochets around and flies around, and then hits him in his neck. And you know, it looks like he's dying. And Kyle panics and drops the shield. And because he drops the shield, Deadshot now can shoot him in the face. And the idea yeah. being that he planned it all. <laughs> just so he could do that because he knew Kyle would freak out because he's such a scrub that the second that he sees that he got shot in the neck, he's going to, you know, drop all his defenses altogether. I was like, what? Yeah. Come yeah. on, man. Kyle deserves better than that. But you you know why Meltzer did that is probably because he doesn't think of Kyle as his Green Lantern. Yeah. That's something that we see again and again from you know, a certain comic book fan from a certain era. Just this idea that Kyle's a scrub and they'll just he'll just never earn their respect. But yeah. Realistically and... speaking, Hal sucks. Sick <laughs> <laughs> of Hal. That's right. That's right. We between the gutters official position is that Hal Jordan sucks. Yeah. <laughs> That's our Green Lantern hot take for the day. So you can you can take that quote out of context and tell all your friends. And yeah, maybe we'll get a whole bunch of Hal Jordan defenders up in our mentions pretty soon. Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna try to kick the hornet's nest and uh, make some controversy here, and it'll be us versus them. Yes, yes, versus them, us versus them. For all of you who who felt that you were diminished and on the outskirts of popular opinion, between the gutters is the place for you. Come here, and we will form our own coalition in support of <laughs> Kyle Rayner over Hal Jordan. <laughs> amen and amen. I also want to talk about Gene Loring's motivation. The final uh, revelation is that she was the killer, and uh, we already talked a little bit about how it requires too much, too many mental gymnastics to see uh, how she got away with it. But I also think that it requires quite a bit of mental gymnastics to see how she benefits from Sue's death. And even though I know she says in her a confession to Ray Palmer that she didn't intend to kill Sue, that she just wanted to hurt her to scare everybody. Even then, the the idea that hurting Sue Dibney would be the thing that causes Ray Palmer to run back into her arms, it's a... It's a long shot. 
It's a long <laughs> shot, man. Like, there's got to be better ways to get back with your ex. You could have just talked to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It makes far more sense for me to murder my friend's wife than to actually sit down and have a conversation with him. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Exactly. And I feel like they tried to cover it up by by having the end scene go uh by having Ray Palmer at the end go, "You're insane." Yeah. Well, that's even lazier writing piled on top of lazy writing. Yeah. I mean, that's true. If that was really how she thought, then that would be insane, but Yeah. What a what a way to get out of that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's it's just lazy writing. Yeah very flimsy and when you really step back and think about how she accomplished all she did uh i mean in addition to the crime all that crime scene stuff that we went over earlier there's also the issue of how she manipulated boomerang captain boomerang and jack drake into killing each other because we learned that the calculator was the one who gave boomerang the job but how would gene loring be able to contact calculator yeah exactly i get that she's involved in the superhero community and maybe maybe compared to your average person she might know a thing or two more but i find it hard to imagine that she would have access to you know the deepest darkest depths of the criminal underworld right exactly exactly it again if we look at the analogy of let's 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 take a step back and at, at this and let's say let's say that okay this is a story about cops right and you know uh the wife of a cop uh, uh orchestrates the the murder of another cop's wife in order to play three-dimensional chess and have all the cops, uh, you know, worry, finally pay attention to the families that they've neglected all these years because they've cared about their jobs too much. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like realistically speaking in in these stories where uh, you have uh, a law enforcement person and then the, their partner it it makes more sense to me to believe that their partners are just civilians. And again, maybe they're trained in the use of firearms. Maybe they have a little bit of knowledge here and there. But the idea that, well, she's going to hit up, you know, MS-13 or whatever, the, the you know, the Bloods <laughs> or the Crips uh, in order to have her plan go through. Like, where would she even begin? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> How does any of that make sense? Yeah, it it really doesn't, unless you think it makes sense just to play it off because she's insane. Maybe insane people have insane resources. I I don't have an answer for that, man. <laughs> I don't. I really don't. Like, if Brad Meltzer actually, if that was his response to me, I I'd be speechless. <laughs> I, I'd just throw up my hands. I, I'd have nothing for him. I really wouldn't. What? She's insane, dude. Who knows she, what insane people can do? You can't predict that's her them. Superpower. You're 
Super yeah. insanity. Yeah. <laughs> Super insanity, which apparently means that she's got access to the criminal underworld. It works for the Joker. Sure, sure. Okay. If, Look, if that's where you're going to go with it. <laughs> and he has access to the criminal underworld. Why wouldn't Gene Loring? Okay, okay. A plus B equals C. Okay. <laughs> But uh, another thing about that same incident, how did she even know who Jack Drake was? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How Again, did you know that Jack Drake was Robin's dad? Exactly. It's a like, okay, Sue Dibney, I kind of get because they yeah, established right up front. Because, yeah, they knew each other. Yeah, they knew each other, and she was a public, she was kind of a public figure at that point, right? Right. Like, yeah, so that makes sense. But Tim Drake. He's he's Robin. He's part of the Bat family, and like, they don't they don't mess around when it comes to secrets. So, mm-hmm. I get the idea that in whatever team that Robin might be involved in, maybe Young Justice, maybe the Teen Titans, whoever, whatever the team may be, that it might slip out here and there that you know he's Tim Drake. Okay, fine, I can accept that. But it's not like Gene Loring hangs out with the Teen Titans. Exactly. It's not like Gene Loring hangs out with the Teen Titans. And I don't I, I find it hard to believe that the Teen Titans or the Young Justice would be so cavalier about their secret identities that, you know, 10 degrees removed from uh, Wonder Girl is going to find a way to get to Gene Loring. You know, exactly. exactly. It doesn't make any sense at all. It, it, and it's not like, again, she this is at a point where she's currently divorced from the Adam. So it's not like she has any real ties to that social circle, let alone teenager that she never would have crossed paths with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just a failure of logic in the storytelling. It is. I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what, uh, not even Brad Meltzer, but uh, the, the the people that would defend this story. I'm kind I'm curious to see how they would explain that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we might have to crawl the depths of the internet in order to find identity crisis truthers. I don't want to do that. I don't want to associate with them on any level. <laughs> okay, so you're not that curious. <laughs> I'm not that curious. If, <laughs> okay. if the price of an answer is having to interact with them, then uh, it's it's a price I'm not willing to pay. <laughs> got it. Got it. I don't all know. Right. I, I feel like that's all I really have to say about the storytelling. It's, yeah. I it, think that I, was quite hefty. I, I thought yeah. that was a lot. So we're more than good there. Yeah, we can move on. Certainly. 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 <laughs> you can't tell right now, but I have a little bow tie that's spinning <laughs> as I speak. Certainly. <laughs> so let's talk about the orig- originality of this uh, story. So what do you think, Drew? This identity crisis, original or nah? I think... What Identity Crisis is trying to present to us is a story about the end of innocence, which in and of itself is fine. That's a fairly innocuous theme or subject to do a story about. 
this story in particular shows us the end of innocence by recontextualizing classic stories from a bygone era and even just the i guess the the nature of superhero comics uh trying to make them a little bit darker and more realistic i I think that's what this book sets out to do i think that's the the mission statement of the book to show that these heroes are more human than you may think that they're not that they're so often associated with their iconography that we forget that they can be hurt emotionally as well mm-hmm. you know it, it's it's not a concept that i think is brand new i don't think it's a concept that was new even in 2004 we've definitely seen plenty of stories about the end of innocence and stories that present this darkening of the superhero aesthetic i think that this comic tries to use the darkness as shorthand for realism and that doesn't work all the time and it definitely doesn't work in this comic darkness darkness isn't automatically equated to real realistic or exactly. realism exactly yeah and i i think the people who made the comic probably thought that making it darker would make it more realistic and relatable and mm-hmm. maybe for certain readers it it did but yeah not not for me yeah like i think i think you 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 hit it on the head when you said that making something dark doesn't make it realistic right because yeah not in and of itself there can be dark things that are realistic but this isn't the way you do it i think i think a lot of the logic surrounding that tends to be tends to come from the fact that people feel like whenever we tell stories that sanitize these things um or uh idealizes them that's something that you do for you know, a child or something, right? Is so uh, we we omit details because we don't want to, you know, fracture their sensibilities or fracture their ego or whatever. But but I think that's a misunderstanding of reality. It's it's not the idea that you know bad things happen in the world and sometimes we just have to like imbibe in these bad things immerse ourselves in them because that's that's the only way that we can accept reality that's what reality is is understanding that you know everything can be this dark or this bleak mm-hmm. but that's not there's a difference between something being dark and something being realistic right there's a right. mature way and to to understand uh the bleakness in the world there's by examining it and discussing it, it discussing it in a upfront realistic way i i think you can approach the subject without you know 
uh, 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 draping yourself in in just the ugliness of it, like in the the idea that you need to uh, 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 become just as bleak and ugly as the things that you're talking about in order to make it quote unquote real when in some ways there's nothing realistic about that at all. Like it might be a real mm-hmm. thing, but that's not your approach to it is, is, is the thing that makes it real. Right. Right. So, so it's, I think there are people that misconstrue these two things. And for the type, for the type of people that look at that and who go, yeah, this is, this is a real worldview to have because if the world is really full of these ugly things, then me being, uh, me, uh, what's it called? Just immersing myself in the ugliness of these things makes me authentic on some level. Like, I think, I think that's a pretty warped sense of view (laughs) to have of the world. You know, it's not realistic and it's not very mature. It's immature of anything. It's, it's kind of like a kid who sees like uh, a grown, you know, who sees an action movie and sees how this person responds to everything with violence and uh, fisticuffs and assumes that that's what you do as an adult. And that's how you're mm-hmm. supposed to approach the world because, you know, a real man goes out there uh, <laughs> and doesn't let anyone tell him what to do. And, and he makes the world capitulate to him. And, that's what that's that's what adults do and <laughs> that's no so much of being an adult is being able to communicate and being able to work out your problems without punching another human being without exactly murdering another human exactly being, you know <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, i i've lived in this world for 40 years and i'm i'm pretty sure that i i've been exposed to what reality is and isn't and i i've been exposed to enough you know bleak and ugly and dark things but you know i there is no part of me that has ever murdered anyone <laughs> and i think i have a pretty realistic worldview or approach to the world uh in in spite of not having uh murder as my first response to any indignity yeah, when we want to kill something, we just record a podcast about exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, while I'm on this soapbox, like you know, when we talk about this, uh, this worldview, like maybe I'm drawing connections that might not necessarily be there, but you know, in a week where we've seen several mass shootings, and you know, just people who didn't know how to process their emotions in a healthy way, who just felt like you know, whatever hatred or anger they, they had in their hearts, that the way to validate themselves and to make themselves, you know, feel like they were, quote, you know, really existing in the world was by going out and shooting up a nightclub or uh, your their local, um, you know, Walmart or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I do think that there's there's some connective tissue between these two like thought processes. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, this is what you get when 
you know, people are raised in a way that that's how they look at the world where, you know, any disrespect, instead of processing it and talking about it and working it out, like, if your response is, you made me feel disrespected and small and now I'm angry and the only way for me to claim that back is to show the world that I'm going to go out here and, like, just cause some mayhem, like, there's there's something not right there, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, man. Did you have any thoughts about uh, the originality of Identity Crisis? Uh, jeez. Yeah, it, we we talked about it a little bit uh, in in the previous section when we discussed the the craft of it, like. I don't think it's the most original idea. I think uh, it, it feels like uh, Brad Meltzer might have wanted to do, yeah, like a cops in crisis kind of story, right? And he just kind of took that filter, uh, took that and filtered the the Justice League and the DC Universe through that prism. And that might not necessarily be a prism that works at least in the way that he portrayed the justice league i i still think one we live in a world where these event comics are an inevitability so mm -hmm. like i get that we're every every year we're gonna get like some big event here or there like that's just a given we have seen so many events so i i would say that i do want to see as much any on any occasion where we can see variety in terms of the kind of event comics that we get, I'm open to seeing it. Right. So right. the idea that they wanted to do an event that didn't focus on all of the superheroes uh, fighting a battle against Thanos, and you know, there's there's going to be a couple of back and forths until the final showdown. And then, you know, some the kind of cosmic finally, threat. Yeah, some sort of cosmic threat or whatever threat, right? So, I, like, I feel like that's the basic formula for all of these is, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, a bunch of mini skirmishes before you get to one final big battle, right? Right. So, I will say that on the face of it, the idea of identity crisis was interesting to me. The idea that it's really a, an event that focuses on the uh, aftermath of 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 an inciting event, right? And it's really more about how the heroes deal with their grief, how the heroes deal with their uh, uh, families, how they deal with their relationships in the aftermath of of this event. Like, I think. If they had just done a story like that, I would have been way more into that, right? If, right. if they had taken out... I, I think my ideal version of an event at this point is if they had taken out all the elements of a mystery. If you start at... Uh, at we have beaten Thanos, and now we have to like put our lives back together, and it's seven issues of us like, you know, having funerals, going to therapy and 
you know, trying to go back to living a normal everyday life, like that would be the kind of event comic that I would want. <laughs> but yeah, that is yeah. not an event comic that they will ever do. I, I and I it it's sad that the closest thing that we ever get to that is this identity crisis. Um actually, now that I think about it, Heroes in Crisis might be similar uh to that idea. Maybe even closer and certainly better than this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but that being said, um Yeah, I I I guess it's just another situation where he if they really had committed to that idea, like really gave us the purest form of that idea, that probably I would have given it far more originality points, but because they still had to have some element of you know, the sensationalist aspect of it, it it just falls short overall. Yeah. And throwing in throwing in rape as shock value doesn't help either. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. And and maybe for me that's that that one thing is the biggest thing that I keep going back to for what ruins the book. Like I know you're probably more vocal about a lot more of the book that bothers you, but for me, um, that one thing is certainly enough to ruin any uh, redemptive value that I could have gotten out of this book. It's almost like Brad Meltzer thought he could do a Watchmen caliber book set in the DC universe proper. Exactly. And one of the lessons that he took from the actual Watchmen was, hey, Watchmen has rape in it. Let's have some rape in Identity Crisis. Yeah, yeah. It's I, like, I'm not even going to go be so crass as to say, well, no, I'll, I'll think that too. Uh, like, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll certainly, I won't disagree with that notion, but I, I will add to it in saying that Watchmen is one of the most beloved uh comics ever right Mm -hmm. and it really does feel like he read watchmen and like a lot of people his takeaway from it was there's a grittiness and a darkness to this and i'm gonna take that and instead of segmenting it off in a mini series or uh, a self-contained universe story I want to see if I can bring that to the main DC universe. And it really felt like that was his approach. And, and so much so that he, 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 he takes the sexual violation and applies it to the history of the justice league. You know, he, 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 he can, he canonizes that act into the history of the Justice League and and in Watchmen what do you have that's something that happened in the golden age of their superheroes you know mm-hmm. so so and and the whole a big chunk of Watchmen was that these smiling saccharine superheroes that we see like Alan Moore has said this repeatedly where the idea of people dressing up 
in costumes to fight crime is inherently crazy, right? Yeah. So yeah. so it makes sense to him when he did Watchmen that these characters would have all of these kinds of manias that psychoses and manias and psychoses that exist beneath the surface and and you know underneath the the glamour of the 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 perfection of it all and it really feels like Brad Meltzer did the same thing here where he went back to the silver age of comics and he applied that logic to those heroes by making them just have more like not necessarily psychoses, but he made them worse people than they were exactly. initially in, yeah. in that era. Yeah, most of the characters here come. Most of the heroes come across as either, like you said, worse people, like they're jerks, or yeah. they're just really incompetent and impotent at what they're doing, can't accomplish anything. Yeah. Or they themselves get victimized and and bullied like like our buddy Kyle Rayner or a firestorm you know like every everybody just comes off looking worse than they actually should be yeah i'd say green arrow looks pretty awful in this he's series he's a jerk man yeah he's he's essentially the voice of the people that were pro lobotomizing other people you know and, yeah. and again once they get caught he's the one that that's the stand-in for for the 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 for the leader who who wants to mind wipe batman and mm -hmm. it's like how do you go back from that how do you how do you look at that and go well it was it was different times man you know <laughs> It's it's just not something that you can just wave your hand at and like just be dismissive about and mm -hmm. yeah but but anyways it really does feel like Brad Meltzer took those aesthetics from Watchmen and really just tried to ingrain it into the Silver Age of the Justice League so that maybe in some way you can try to reconcile some of the more sillier elements of the things that have happened in the past but uh yeah like it it really feels like his answer to contemporizing those old silly comics that were made in those eras was by injecting this sense of again injecting this sense of grittiness and grossness mm -hmm. to it because how do you make that stuff uh, palatable for modern audiences? Well, you know, we can't have them switching minds with supervillains because, you know, who would believe that? That's such a silly premise. Well, yeah. we're going to have to find a way. Let's, 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 in, let's introduce the idea that they mind-wiped a bunch of these guys because, you know, that's the only way that we can explain it. Yeah, that's why Dr. Light always ended up fighting the Teen Titans. Yeah, he was a joke for a whole bunch of years. I don't know. It's... Yeah. I, I feel like this podcast episode is therapy for us. <laughs> it's helping us to work out, like, whatever our issues are with this book, you know? 
one thing I also did want to bring up in regards to whether this book has something meaningful to communicate is okay. When I was in college, I have I had a buddy who was somewhat interested in comics, but he wasn't, you know, like a Wednesday warrior kind of reader. Like he would, he just liked the characters and a lot of the ideas of superheroes. So he was, he would read maybe a few things here and there. And I remember he told me that he absolutely loved Identity Crisis. And one of the things about it that he loved so much was the whole thing in the middle of the story about Robin and his father. And I know that Meltzer and Rags Morales in their comments about the book also had that as a highlight moment about fatherhood and being a son and caring for, yeah, loving your father, um, which could also be an extension to just loving your family in general, but specifically your father. And um, one of my, my, that friend of mine in college told me that this story, especially those issues uh, about Robin and his father, it, it impacted him so much that, that I don't remember if it moved him to tears, but it, it, he said it resonated with him really emotionally. And he ended up buying a copy of the book to give to his own dad and it, his dad could appreciate it with him, you know? Mm. But do you think that this comic has any anything special to say about fathers? I I definitely think it's trying to say something about fathers and sons, right? Because that entire uh, story element, like it, it's it's no coincidence that Captain Boomerang is i don't even remember his kid's name uh uh shoot i forgot too <laughs> boomy that's how little he mattered to me <laughs> <laughs> uh boomy okay captain boomerang and boomy uh, jr, boomy jr. <laughs> all right like it's no coincidence that those two end up killing each other and you know uh, you end up having this I don't even know if they're necessarily reflections of one another because, uh, you know, Captain Boomerang Jr., uh, you know, that that's essentially his origin story, right? Is that his estranged father was murdered and because of the way that the, the system treats him and because uh, the way that they're callous towards uh, the body of his, again, his estranged father, he takes it upon himself to become the next Captain Boomerang to, mm -hmm. you know, either honor his legacy or to get revenge on the system. Okay, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's it's no coincidence that he ends up killing Tim Drake's dad and ends up, well, I don't even know what, uh, aside from a couple of scenes of Tim Drake being sad, I, I really don't know what the fallout from that was other than, again, the shock value of, killing tim drake's dad but yeah yeah but i don't know if there's anything much to say about fatherhood beyond that i, right? I definitely feel like we've read a lot more comics that had way better things 
to say about fatherhood. Yeah. Like it, way more meaningful and poignant. Like and I can see I can see the like the emotional impact of 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 that build up, right? Where you know, um Tim Drake listens on the phone as his dad gets killed. Mm-hmm. Like I I get that. Yeah. But in terms of you know, what it says outside of that, I, I really I'm kind of at a loss. I, I I don't know if it says anything about fatherhood. Right, right. Like, do you have anything? No, I'm I'm with you, man. I think it's something that I can comprehend on an intellectual level why that scene where Robin hears his father's last words, I can comprehend why that's a moving scene. And yeah. I'll even go so far as to say that that page where Robin returns to his house and he finds his father and Robin is just, uh, you know, in anguish at finding his father's corpse. But then uh, Batman kind of gives him this hug over Jack Drake's body. That's actually a, pr- a pretty good drawing for Rags Morales, in my opinion. I think it's it's more to do with the concept behind it where we have Robin who has just removed all his Robin clothes. I'm not I'm not exactly sure why he took his clothes off when he ran back inside his house. <laughs> but there's the image of Robin in his tank top and boxers being hugged by Batman. And Batman, you don't really see his jawline. It's just it just looks like the Batman costume enveloping Tim Drake and Tim Drake. Uh, you can still see one of his eyes and the half of the rest of his face is in Batman's shadowy bosom. But the <laughs> fact that he's being embraced by Batman's costume and you see his eye uh, looking out at you, there, there's something uh, memorable about that image. It's it's a very striking image. So I, I will give Rags Morales his due for for that. Yeah. Um, it's probably one of the, uh, iconic images to come out of the book. Uh, trying to think, were there any other iconic images? When I think of this comic and I think of the images that immediately come to mind whenever I think of Identity Crisis, yeah, I do think of the page where Elongated Man finds Sue Dibney's body. Yeah. So he's cradling her and she's all burnt up and stuff and the sprinklers are going off in the house and he's just you know anguished that's I did a read, memorable one i did read a an interesting note about that where they were interviewing brad Mel- Meltzer and rags morales and um one of the points of references for that was he wanted it to be similar to the scene at the end of Shawshank Redemption. Have you ever oh, seen yeah. that? You saw I that, right? Seen, I still haven't seen Shawshank Redemption. Right. Well, I mean, it's a pretty famous scene in the movie uh, that most people think of when they do think of that movie is the scene where Andy Dufresne is, you know, just finally in the... He's finally, like, just under this uh, downpour of rain, and he's just... 
you know, uh, 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 relishing the rain and in 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 rapture and in joy, right? Because uh, you know, it symbolizes mm-hmm. his freedom. Mm-hmm. But uh, but what Meltzer was saying was he wanted to have a similar feeling of like grandiosity to it, but he wanted the overall mood to be the opposite, which was he wanted it to be uh, devastating as opposed to uplifting in Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was interesting, but yeah. But back to your original question, like I, I guess, yeah, that, that scene with uh, Tim Drake and Batman is one of the most memorable scenes that I do think of when I think of this book, I, I think of that. Yeah, you, that scene where Elongated Man is um, holding Sue is is one, and uh, that panel with Doctor Light sticking his tongue out. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> well, I mean, I remember that for different reasons. <laughs> uh, I was yeah. also gonna say, I there's one scene in the end. I guess this might be the the scene that I do like. Uh, and and you know this is in a vacuum in it like outside of everything else. But after Ray Palmer finds out that um you know Gene Loring was was behind it all, he puts her in Arkham Asylum, and then you see him walk away. And as he's walking away, he's you know. He's pretty messed up about the whole thing, and you just watch him shrink into an atom until he just disappears, and you just hear the uh, the the thought panels, the the captions, captions. Uh, talking about it's it's in his voice, and he talks about how he feels so small, and he just wants to disappear, you know? Yeah. Like I thought that was a good scene. Um, yeah. I do remember that. Actually, now that you mention it, how come Jean ended up in Arkham Asylum? Because she was insane. <laughs> remember? But she Ray didn't Palmer live in Gotham. Like, yeah, do, but I, I imagine that you take people put from all over people. the country and just <laughs> dump them there? I think you can put insane people wherever they house insane people. So how come none <laughs> of the other bad guys that the other heroes fight ever get tossed into Arkham Asylum? Because none of them ain't married to the Ray. Or to the Adam. <laughs> <laughs> He's the Ray. The Ray Palmer. <laughs> uh, yeah, but back to your other original question. I'd, I'd probably say that if I wanted to recommend a story to anyone about, you know, fathers and family, I'd, I'd recommend anything from Jeff Lemire over this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about the impact that identity crisis had? Yeah, sure. And I think for me, this actually is where I ding this story the most, um, you know, in terms of what it is about it that bothers me, which is uh, this comic was such a success that it really did open up a lot of floodgates for a lot of bad comics moving forward. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just that it was, you know, a, a bad comic in its own right. It was the fact that 
it was a bad comic that that infected all these other comics so that we ended up in an era of bad comics for years to come following it mm-hmm. uh, you know this 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 comic would affect batman it would affect the flash it would affect the justice league um green lantern know, green lantern green arrow like for years moving forward after it they were just dealing wonder with, woman yeah yeah like after that after this storyline, we had um, all that stuff with the OMAC project, and uh, it was all the countdown to Infinite Crisis stuff. Exactly, exactly, and all that stuff was taking various plot elements that had been introduced here and spinning them off into their own story, uh, which would then build up into another event, Infinite Crisis. Yeah, yeah. So, which was also a pretty awful story in its own right. Yeah, probably yeah. worse than this one. And and the thing about that was Infinite Crisis was I don't know if it was their attempt to uh no, I it was their attempt to retcon the universe, but it wasn't a means of retconning away all the garbage because it just retconned it into even worse stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about some of the other things that came out as a result of Identity Crisis. And I think we can point to things like DC Countdown and even a lot of Jeff Johns comics because yeah. Jeff Johns was a writer he that was I. He's such a big part of it. Yeah. I, he was a writer whose work I did like up to a certain point. Uh,. And I think that point was Identity Crisis. Even though he didn't write Identity Crisis himself, I think because he wrote quite a few of the tie-ins, like he wrote a pretty long Flash arc that tied into Barry Allen's role in the Mind Wipes. Yeah. And uh, later on, Jeff Johns would do a story arc, the the last story arc, I believe, in JLA that dealt with the fallout of the Mind Wipes and, and all that stuff. Um, and I, I remember think, it definitely affected the last arc of his Flash run, too. Yeah. And so up to a certain point, his Flash run, his Flash run was the thing that made him. It was, the, I mean, he had, he had done a bunch of other stuff, but that Flash run kind of put him on the map, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was Teen Titans, Justice Society of America. Like mm-hmm. he he had a pretty good run on quite a few things, but it really felt like once Identity Crisis came out, he it was like that gave him permission to do what Brad Meltzer did in terms of taking the characters and stories of his youth and putting those back in the spotlight. Yeah, like he he ended up becoming this writer who focused on parading the things that he loved just because he was in a position where he could do that yeah so we ended up getting things like green lantern rebirth which brought back hal jordan (laughs) we got flash rebirth which brought back barry allen because that was his green lantern and that was his flash yeah and then it it feels like the latter part of his career so much of it was really following this the same formula as Brad Meltzer in that it was really about 
recontextualizing stories from the past and contemporizing it with, you know, with modern sensibilities. Like, we would see this again and again, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, and then back to what I was saying, like, even that last arc of the Flash run was directly tied into this because it was really about this rogues war that was going to happen because yeah you know there was this new new batch of rogues that were coming up against uh the old rogues and the thing about the old rogues were a bunch of them were also mind wiped by the justice league or yeah. by uh you know by whomever um, the league within the league the league within the league and what ended up happening was because of the revelations of um identity crisis it all spilled out into the world and all of a sudden all of these villains who had reformed themselves over the years were telling themselves is this really who i am like what if i was actually always a villain but they did something to me and it just led into this huge civil war uh between the villain mm -hmm. community that, right? that's actually an idea that was executed pretty interestingly and pretty well in Squadron Supreme, uh, the Marvel 80s series written by Mark Grunewald. There's mm -hmm. a whole storyline in there about villains being forcibly, not exactly mind-wiped, but I guess brainwashed into becoming good people. Yeah, yeah. And it, it that comic does explore that in a pretty fascinating way that I, I think ended up being more interesting than the mind wipes of identity crisis yeah yeah but it everything i i think it's fair to say identity crisis was was the first shot in mm -hmm. just years and years of just brutally garbage comics following yeah. that the the way i look at it is those early 2000s were were kind of like the second golden age where we had new Marvel doing whatever they were doing with the Ultimate line and the Marvel Knights line and uh, the Marvel Max line. You know, they were they were experimenting over there and just letting creators be the focus, uh, especially talented writers. They were they were just letting them go wild and and do whatever they wanted to do at marvel and then at dc you know something very similar was happening in those early 2000s uh, late 90s early 2000s they were competing especially, yeah and... especially after dc had acquired wildstorm like wildstorm was doing so much good stuff with with the uh joe casey wildcats with the authority uh you know all of those classic books like that was around the era we got sleeper so there was a lot of great stuff being published uh, you know, Ex Machina and other creator-owned books, too. But uh, I think Identity Crisis kind of serves as a bit of a, a flashpoint because... It, it was successful. Yeah. It made it, money. It pointed, it pointed the way to event-driven comics. Like, it's not the only event comic to do that because Marvel is doing that on their own, too. Uh, you know, I, I think the first one from th that era that I can think of, at least, is House of M. Mm. 
you know, and then we would get things like Civil War and Secret Invasion and Fear Itself and so on and so forth. Whereas with DC, we got Identity Crisis and Infinite Crisis, 52, Final Crisis and Blackest Night, Flashpoint and so on and so forth. But the uh, event-driven comics, that can be fun in its own way. I don't necessarily crap on all event comics. They're just kind of, you know, your Hollywood blockbuster type of entertainment. And there's no real reason to really punch down on things that aren't intended to be intellectual or anything like that. However, being in the event-driven age of comics also paved the way for us to enter the editorial age of comics which i do think is a pretty bad thing yeah because we moved away from the model of just letting writers and artists do their thing and getting out of their way to all of a sudden having all these editorial mandates to constrict the creative people into uh writing and drawing stories that kind of fit within this uh year-long plan to have this event which would end up leading to another event and so on and so forth. And that that's a really bad stifling way to run comics. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it, it almost feels, it feels like success was more, was ultimately more damaging to them than failure was because, for whatever comics they were putting out and for whatever meager to moderate successes they were having, like at least they were taking chances. But the, the second that they saw the formula that was required to make money, uh, they did what, what they would naturally do. Like corporate, you know, uh, uh, businesses do what they naturally do, which is they try to milk that formula or they try to recreate their formula in into infinity because apparently in their minds, if if we can do this once, we should be able to do this forever. Yeah. And it will it will bear the same results each and every time. And that yeah, by by pulling the reins uh tighter and, and making it so that everything has to conform to this. All, all they did was, you know, ruin the the creative expressionism of comics. Like to whatever limited degree that it existed, they 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 took that, and because now every comic had to be part of, you know, had to play some role in this again this uh, five year plan that they were working out. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, so there's no real denying the impact that Identity Crisis has. It's just that, in my opinion, the impact, even though great, was all pretty negative. Yeah. And again, uh, you know, outside of the editorial stuff, it it was more of this, you know, this idea that uh, a, a grim and gritty and... and uh, dark comics they sell this is what's in now so it's just this constant one-upping of that ethos of that ideology uh, so that if this is what the people want we're just going to give them more of this stuff that finds a way to be 
even darker, even more uh, bleak. Mm-hmm. And 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 next thing you know, the entire line is just. It just feels like the entire universe is just this, more of this, and I. I that's another impact that I do think was overall uh, just harmful to comics. That yeah. that's one that even transcended, you know, Infinite Crisis because once Infinite Crisis happened, and you know, once once you had Flashpoint, and they rolled out the New Fifty Two, it just felt like they still kept trying to double down on that. Yeah. And that did not go away for a very long time. Yeah, that's true, man. So I guess now that we've talked about the impact, we can discuss identity crisis's ability to withstand the test of time. How's that sound? Sounds like a pretty short conversation. Cause I think everything that we've already set up to this point pretty much says where we stand yeah, on it. <laughs> I think so too. I think I think it's fair to say that in hindsight uh you know all these years after it's come out it's something that has aged worse over time. I don't know if that's the popular uh consensus uh that that people have on it. Um I don't know if newer readers today who got into comics because of the new 52 have gone back to read identity crisis for themselves because they heard anything about it. Yeah. I do know that at the time it was coming out, it was pretty popular, not just in terms of sales, but I do think it had good reviews from the websites of the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As time passed though, I, I think that, quite a few of those websites or maybe not the same websites, but quite a few comics websites and uh, bloggers and critics have pointed out a lot of the failures of this comic. And, you know, just from a critical and intellectual standpoint, much as how we've criticized uh, the story in this episode, I think people do recognize that. I don't know if the masses recognize that, but I think there are enough intelligent comics thinkers and people who who do see that this isn't a good piece of work. Mm. I think DC still does a good job of keeping it in print, though, so I'm sure someone out there keeps on buying it. Yeah. Somebody at DC has a lot of respect for, for this comic. I mean, they even made an absolute edition of this at one point. Yeah, well, I I don't I certainly don't pay attention enough to this uh to 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 think about that. So I didn't even realize that they 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 made it in that format. I, I guess it's no surprise now that I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's still something that's pretty easy to get your hands on. Like they do a new printing of this every few years. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny to think of this as uh, an evergreen DC story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really would be interested in hearing from somebody who got into comics years after this comic was originally published, because I wonder if they actually have any interest in it, you know? Like, I wonder if for someone who, for a, a younger reader, I mean, not younger as in like a kid, but just someone who's younger than us, uh-huh. I wonder if... I wonder if 
like a 20 or 30 year old who picks this up for the first time in 2022 or 2023 will, you know, enjoy it for what it is or just roll their eyes or throw it aside in disgust. Yeah, yeah. I I do have a feeling, though, that it's a comic that if you gave it to all the Snyder people, the the Zack Snyder, uh, the people that love or like, I, yeah, even even if they just like the Zack Snyder uh, uh, Justice League films, I have a feeling like giving them this, it, it's the type of thing that they would eat up. You think so? Even though the heroes get pretty emotional in this comic? I think so. Because I think the selling point of Snyder is it, it isn't necessarily that they're stoic or that they're, uh, you know, uh, Adonises or anything like that. Although that's that's a big part of it, too. Uh, but it really does feel like they do get emotional in those comics or in those movies. Uh, I remember Zack Snyder talking about his 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 Superman and how he didn't. <laughs> like the idea of kryptonite because he wanted to tell a story where you know he used emotional kryptonite because he wanted superman <laughs> to cry he wanted superman to be you know just not traumatized but just to be in grief basically wait with... did superman cry in those movies i think he did because there was that whole thing where he you know didn't want to break uh, he didn't want to kill Zod, but he had to because he had no choice, right? So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I guess I forgot about that. Oh well, it's a forgettable movie. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't worth remembering. I deleted yeah. it from my hard drive space in my brain <laughs> to clear out some space. And when I say I deleted it from the hard drive space in my brain, what I mean is. I hit myself repeatedly in the head with a hammer until I forgot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was preferable to remembering that movie. <laughs> yeah, but but I I I do think that the characters being emotional is uh consistent with with what people like about um the Snyderverse films. It's it's that sense that the drama exists at uh, level 11 at all times, right? Where it's mm. like, if we feel something, it's got to be devastating to us emotionally, you know? Mm-hmm. So the idea that, um, you know, Sue Dibney uh, would be uh, sexually assaulted and and uh, that this is the, the trauma that uh, affects the the entirety of the DC universe, like, I think that exists on a level that is consistent with what they consider sensible. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, it's weird that I have to say that, but (laughs) it's, 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 yeah, I, I feel like it's something to them where they'd be like, yeah, it makes sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. you have any final thoughts on identity crisis? Uh, no, I, I, I think what we've said pretty much sums up everything. Yeah. We can talk about some, uh, some comics that we would recommend to people. 
So this is kind of a a dicey question uh, that might need some uh, clarification. But, you know, when we say uh, what comics would we recommend for people who 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 who've read Identity Crisis, uh, that could either mean, you know, uh, if you want to read something like Identity Crisis (laughs) or. Uh, what what we could recommend, but I think in this case, what we mean by it is, if you want to read a good version of Identity Crisis, <laughs> or a better a better, a better version, uh, a better comic than this, what would we recommend? Uh, so I, I think that's the the way to look at it. What you got for us, Albert? Uh, so we mentioned it earlier, um, in the podcast, but. I do think that Watchmen is something that makes sense. Like if for for all of the uh, elements that Brad Meltzer borrowed from Watchmen to try to integrate into the mainstream DC universe, like if you want to see the source material for that and the way that it was done or the, a proper way for that to be done, I'd say just go straight to the source and just read Watchmen, because Watchmen really, truly is a masterpiece. Yeah, I, I won't ruin too much about it, but I, I would say that there's a reason that it's considered uh, up there in terms of uh, the great literary comics uh, of of our time. So mm-hmm. I, I would recommend that. You got anything, Drew? Or like, do you want to go back and forth, or do you just want me to... Name my name my list. Uh, I guess if we're gonna go back and forth, I can talk about a couple here. I have like one specific recommendation, and then I have a few general or broad recommendations. But I wanted to go back to what we were saying earlier about the theme of fathers and sons, because I I did think of some stories, some comics that do a really good job of portraying that idea in a way that I think is more emotionally authentic. And I guess, yeah, I'd say more in a way that's more resonant. The the first one is A Journal of My Father by Jiro Taniguchi. This is a manga from, I believe it's from the 90s. And it's about a middle-aged man who goes back to his hometown for his father's funeral. And this is a guy who maybe didn't have the super closest relationship with his father, where his father was felt kind of distant to him. But it's a story about him meeting up with uh, his sister and a bunch of relatives and people that he hasn't seen in a while who knew both him and his father. And through that experience of reminiscing and and talking to people during this time of mourning, he gets an even fuller picture of his father than he did when his father was alive. And it's a comic that I think has potential to wreck you emotionally. It's it's pretty powerful. And I would recommend that to anyone who, who thought that the stuff about fathers and sons in identity crisis was moving because yeah, compared to like 
a serious, more literary comic, this identity crisis doesn't really uh, compare. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, another comic that I was going to recommend was... If you're a fan of Brad Meltzer, uh, we, we talked about a few of his comics and his works on this episode, but the one thing of his that I would actually recommend is uh, uh, an all-ages comic series that he did called um, Ordinary People Change the World. They turned it into a show on PBS called Xavier Riddle and the Secret Museum, and it's a comic that's done by uh, him and uh, uh, the artist is Chris Eli- Eliopoulos. And oh yeah, I, I've I've read some of those actually. They're not actually comics; they're they're kids books, like picture books. Oh yeah, okay. Well, they're yeah, yeah they're like picture I've, books. I've bought some of those for my friends' kids actually. <laughs> yeah, but I would recommend that just because you know. I think that is probably something that is funner to read than Identity Crisis. Uh, there's substantially less sexual assault in those. <laughs> the art's better. The art's substantially better. If you like Calvin and Hobbes, that 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 art is pretty sweet. Um, now, now you got me second-guessing myself because I thought it was a picture book, but is it a comic? I can't remember it's, now. It's probably a picture book, but... I. I think to some degree I consider all comics picture books. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that that's yeah. that's that's fair. Yeah. But yeah, so it's 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 a series of books that highlights and discusses the lives of various famous people throughout history. Um and again, like if you want to read more Brad Meltzer stuff, this is probably the the I, I'm personally a fan of whimsical lighter fare, so uh, this is probably the one thing of his that I can recommend in good conscience. How many Snatter Cut fans do you think would be willing to give this recommendation a try? Zero. Uh, I. <laughs> there are people in our lives who I think don't i think they look at it and they go their their first impression is this is kid stuff and they just don't really have the i don't know what it is like they they lack whatever it is that allows them to enjoy it just for just for that maybe maybe there's maybe there's this sense that they're more sophisticated than that or more mature than that and they need to have, uh, you know, a certain degree of complexity in order to justify their entertainment. But it's like, dude, just, just relax, just enjoy it. <laughs> like, yeah, you, not everything has to be a a a, a her her Herculean uh, a work of staggering genius. Some, <laughs> some, sometimes. It's okay to just enjoy things just to enjoy things, you know? Like, there are some things that can just be wholesome and, uh, you know, just enjoyable because it's got cute pictures or whatever. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. 
hey, those Snyder Cut fans might learn something from those biographies, too. I doubt it. <laughs> because they're <laughs> incapable of learning? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. Like, I... I... <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we make character judgments based on people's <laughs> taste in movies and comics. I just have a feeling that there are certain uh, minty individuals, certain jemmy <laughs> individ- individuals who really aren't about educating themselves <laughs> beyond a certain uh, uh, degree, right? Right. Like, I'm pretty sure they 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 learned everything that they needed to learn in life as far as they're concerned and they're they're good with that. <laughs> yep, they're just staying fresh. Yeah. Which is an attitude that is especially unfresh. <laughs> uh, you got another recommendation or you want me to keep going? The other thing I would recommend, and this is kind of a just a broad category, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier too, but I was going to recommend Jeff Lemire comics about fathers because he's a guy who does a lot of comics dealing with families and fatherhood and fathers and sons. You know, we did a pretty big episode a little over a year ago about Sweet Tooth, which is essentially like a father-son road trip, even though... You know, it's not really a biological, they're not biologically related, but, you know, the idea of it is pretty similar. But uh, in terms of some of his other books that I'd highlight as really emotionally resonant father-son kind of stories, I'd point to Underwater, The Underwater Welder, which is one of his uh, earlier indie comics. And for a couple of his more recent ones that I just read, so these are more fresh in my mind, but there was Snow Angels, which was originally on Comixology, and then Dark Horse published the physical editions. And there was also a book called May's Book. And both of those deal with fathers from different angles, and uh, Snow Angels in particular is more of like this post-apocalyptic science fiction kind of story, whereas May's Book is a little bit more grounded and deals with uh, reality. But yeah, again, if if you enjoyed Identity Crisis for the Tim Drake and Jack Drake stuff or even the Boomerang and Boomerang Jr. stuff, yeah, th- these Jeff Lemire comics about fathers will be far more uh, mature and sophisticated and literary so I think you'll get more out of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next recommendation is Hickman's Avengers and New Avengers. And this, I think, is a comparison that's pretty close to Identity Crisis because the, I guess, New Avengers more than the Avengers in Hickman's run it's something we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast just because we love it so much and, you know, we lo- just love the heck out of it. But mm-hmm. there are actually quite a few similarities between the two series in that uh, the new Avengers by Hickman is about a, a secret group of Avengers within the Avengers and about them making decisions that are, 
you know, the tough decisions that the main group of Avengers can't make, you know? So it, it does follow in that similar path that Identity Crisis does, but it does it in a far better way. And there are other elements. I'm, I'm not going to ruin new Avengers for you, but um, yeah, suffice it to say, just just the very idea that this team of Avengers, this secret team of Avengers, um, you know, they... They also mind-wipe Batman. <laughs> they they mind they found a way to get into the DC universe and they mind wiped Batman <laughs> and then they killed Jack Drake. <laughs> no, but they they actually mind wiped Captain America. Okay, I, yeah, I wasn't gonna ruin it, but I guess since it's out there, uh, oh, yeah, whatever. It, that's in like the second or third issue. Okay, okay, like they, yeah, so they make decisions that they where they have to li- live with the. Should I just the, edit that part out? No, keep it in. Okay. They they make decisions where they have to live with the consequences of it and part of the you know, part of the uh uh decision uh part of the consequences of what they have to do involves mind wiping Captain America. So there's really quite a few parallels between uh Hickman's New Avengers and Identity Crisis, but it's, and on top of that, if that isn't enough for you, Rags Morales draws a few issues of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, Hickman's New Avengers is done in a way where I think the drama is more impactful, more powerful. And I don't think that the... Well, yeah, there, there's just a lot less... Uh, there are a lot less uh, questionable decisions that are made on his part overall. Uh, he, he just does a better job of constructing a story. There's less sensationalism and shock value of the wrong all the kind. That, all the stuff that he does in his story builds up neatly to Secret Wars. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to read a good version of Identity Crisis, I'd probably say that Hickman's New Avengers and Avengers is the substantially better version of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did you have another recommendation? No, that's all I got. Okay. And the other thing that I would put out there, and this is just more for, for giggles because it's uh it's got an interesting history, but around the time Identity Crisis was coming out, Marvel saw that this was ginning up a lot of uh, attention for DC. So they decided that they would try to throw a wrench in the monkey works over there <laughs> by releasing their own comic, you know, hoping to confuse people <laughs> who are buying comics who are going into comic book shops. So they created a series called Identity Disc. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like i don't think it was a good comic i never read it but it's just funny that as identity crisis was coming out their their plan for it was let's just release this comic with a similar name and hopefully it'll just throw <laughs> off a whole bunch of people <laughs> maybe we'll get some sales out of it <laughs> i did read that one and it was pretty forgettable all i remember was the basic concept which was a group of supervillains uh are hired i forget if they were hired or if they just all independently 
go on this mission, but there is a thing called an identity disc, which is a disc that contains the secret identities of all the superheroes. <laughs> so these supervillains, Juggernaut, I'm looking at a, I just looked up the cover to issue one. So it looks like Juggernaut, Sabretooth, Vulture, Deadpool, and Bullseye. They all Ooh, team up. What a team. <laughs> exactly. They team up to to grab the identity disc. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's too funny. Yeah. So if you want to read that just for for giggles, then sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And just uh, remind yourself that that was coming out concurrently alongside Identity <laughs> Crisis. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd like to think, I want to imagine that there's an alternate universe somewhere where uh, Marvel's plan actually succeeded and Identity <laughs> Disc ended up becoming it such a juggernaut that it overshadowed Identity Crisis. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been so funny if that had happened. That would be hilarious. <laughs> if I ever come across those Identity Disc issues in a quarter bin, I might just pick those up for the laughs. I'd have to... If you ever get them, let me know. I'm, I'd want to check them out at this point. Just, just yeah, like you, just for the laughs, dude. Yeah, I remember reading it when the trade paperback came out. I, I, I went to a Borders and just read it off their shelf. Uh-huh. But other than, other than the cover, I, I really don't remember much about it. It probably wasn't very good. Yeah, I, I'm doubtful of it. <laughs> Did it say who wrote it? Yeah, it was, was it? Robert Rohde. Okay, it sounds he sounds familiar, but I can't remember what else he's done. He's done a couple of things in at Vertigo. He had this book called Codename Knockout. Oh, okay, I kind of yeah, remember I that. Yeah, and then he did a few Marvel comics too. Like he had a run on Elektra. He did a couple of, maybe it was just one, but he did that Loki miniseries with Asad Ribich. Okay. Uh, and he's done some other Thor comics too. Okay. Oh. Yeah, those are the big things. I I don't really know what else he's done. Hmm. All right. All right. Well, you got anything else? Nope. I am ready to put identity crisis behind us. Yeah. Let us hope we never have to read it again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, if, uh, if you got any questions, if you got any comments of your own about identity crisis, or if you want to recommend something to us, or if you want to make any comments about it, hit us up on our, uh, Gmail at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at between the gutters, or, uh, you can hit us up on Twitter for however long Twitter is going to be running, <laughs> you know, uh, whether it be a day or a week or a month, whatever. Um, or you can hit us up on, uh, like, do we have a Facebook page? I don't remember if we have a Facebook page. But, yeah, you, you can either hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. And um, We are not on Facebook. We are not on Facebook. Unless, unless okay. you created a Facebook page and didn't tell me about it. I do not believe I did. So so there we go. If you're listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you could uh, give us a good review, we would appreciate that very much. Five stars would be nice, but whatever you can give us, uh, whatever you feel comfortable with, we'd appreciate it. All right, this is Between the Gutters. 
episode 150. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you next time. Peace. Bye, guys.